This show is supported by CoinKite. If you're still relying on a third party to custody your Bitcoin, you don't have Bitcoin. You have Bitcoin exposure and a promise to pay. To truly own Bitcoin, maintain privacy, and to experience all the benefits of doing so, which I often discuss on this show, you need to be custodying your own Bitcoin, or as I like to say, have your 12 magic words. This is where CoinKite comes in. They offer an array of products that allow you to easily and securely do just that, take full ownership of your Bitcoin. They also appreciate how much Bitcoin has become a part of so many of our lives and continue to develop fun and unique products designed specifically for hardcore Bitcoiners. They've been in business for over 10 years and are definitely a favorite company for many, including myself. If you'd like to learn more, visit coinkite.com. Let's do it. You guys have that um, live. sort of hurricane stuff going on at the moment. Is that hurricane? What is it? Yeah, there was a, we're live now, FYI. But yeah, there was a hurricane um, passing through the Caribbean, I think last weekend. And uh, yeah, it was windy and rainy, but the, the worst of it was um, in Puerto Rico and kind of the eastern tip of the DR. So we were in the clear, basically. It was cool, though. I like right before it kicked off like hardcore when it was just like, you know, basically before the worst of it hit us, but it was still kind of crazy out like wind and rain and shit. I went out for a run and a, and a swim on the beach and um, this like it's awesome, dude. There's nobody around, you know, like you have the whole beach to yourself. And I, I like I love trail running or running like when it's just nasty out because you feel like some sort of, you know, army commando or Navy SEAL or some shit, you know, in your mind. And uh, and then get in the water and play around. It's like it's super rough. And I don't know. I've always loved storms and being out in them to the extent that it's possible. So it was no big deal, really, where I am. So, yeah. I've, uh, Anyways, been in a few of those. Seen yeah. some uh, some crazy things like uh, the umbrella poles getting thrown and piercing tree trunks. Some pretty yeah. nutty stuff. And, you know, like for a lot of people, well, in many parts of the world, I guess, um, these sorts of things are way more destructive than it is for like, you know, us who live in relatively not nice houses. It's not, you know, like normal houses, you know, because when in a lot of the, you know, especially tropical areas of the world, like people are living in shanties. You know, yeah, exactly. And those things just get completely decimated at storms. So I don't want to... uh make light of how destructive it can be but i you know i've always just enjoyed the chaos of a good storm yeah no, i understand that i've always enjoyed it too um but, but i've been out in some choppy waves before and when one of those throws you on a on a bank or sand uh i don't know you kind of lose it it's appeal for how fun it can be but yeah well i mean it shows you kind of how risky it can be too right like yeah being out in the water is a is a trip because like all it takes is a wave to hit you when you're not expecting it. You gulp it back and then you reflexively cough and suck in. And if I, if in that suck in, it's another wave. Like you could be pretty stitched up, you know. It's there's no joke out trouble. there. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It's humbling though, huh? Getting slapped in the face by a big wave. Totally, totally. I mean, you know, there's another kind of weird thing of mine, but I. Um, I, I do a lot of swimming too, right? Like out in, out in the water and in the ocean, I'm a bit more careful with it. Like, but when I was back home in Canada for a while, I used to swim in the a pond there. And, uh, if there was like a, a really windy, rainy day and the pond was super rough and like, 
you know, I used to go swim with my dad uh, when he was available. Uh, it would be like, and he would be like, no, we're, you know, I don't want to go today. And I would just, I would prefer to swim in the crazy chop, right? Because it makes it so much more intense, right? You got to manage your breathing so much more carefully. You've got to be aware of all the the waves so much more carefully, because again, like you turn to the side and you get a wave slapped in your face and you don't get that breath you needed. You know, the, the margin for error is so little and uh, there's just something exhilarating about it. Right. I mean, this is why people okay. like doing kind of risky sports and extreme sports and shit. So, yeah, we went uh, surfing in Hawaii under the moonlight and you'd have uh, some clouds that would come and like block out the moon. And so all of a sudden you're like kind of pitch black in the oh, sea. Oh man, holy shit. And you'd have these big waves coming and you'd just hear this roar and then just slap. And it's just like, oh. That's Jimbo no on, the, on the, he just popped in. Does he know we're live? And does he know? Nah, like, is he, he, I don't think he does, but I, he'll be fine. Oh, well. Um, let, let him know he's going to, he's going to be live with his face on the video as soon as he comes in. Jimbo, can you hear me? I can now. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, sweet. Uh, Jimbo, what up? I guess you don't mind that your face is showing. Oh, no, it's all right. All but right. thank you. Thank you for sweet. asking. Uh, so now the whole gang is here. What's going on? How you guys doing? What do you want to talk about? Well, don't, don't look at me. He wrote me into this. <laughs> I have no idea. We were just kind of, um, you're saying who wants to come on. And I just kind of said, I will, if Jimbo does. And, you know, Jimbo's like, yeah, sure. Why not? Well, um, what's, what's in scope? What's in scope? Is it like must be Bitcoin or are we allowed to go geopolitics? There's no fucking <laughs> scope whatsoever. Whatever you want to talk That's about. That's the best scope. <laughs> I, I saw I saw a news report um, today. I don't know when when it happened, but it was Bloomberg reporting that uh, the Treasury is trying to staff a position called um, Chief Sanctions Economist, <laughs> and this person would be responsible for reporting on uh, potential likely outcomes of proposed sanctions or existing sanctions because we do so much sanctioning that they need to specify a position just for that. It pays one hundred and fifty thousand a year salary. Uh, requires top secret clearance, and this person, in addition to reporting uh, on these things, would also have like two staff economists to work with them. So they're also a manager. Which so this whole this whole idea anyway that that's that's the framing. So I'll stop. We need that. well, and I they mean, don't have to be an economist. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. They being being trained as an economist is not required. Top secret clearance <laughs> is, but having any kind of economics degree not required. Yeah, sure. I mean, we need, I mean, you got to wonder how many of these people either are already or will end up being just like sleeper cell Bitcoiners in these, in these supposed positions of like regulatory fuckery, you know, cause you can, you can hire someone for a position. You can tell them their, their job description is whatever to point the sanction finger wherever they want it pointed. But as we all know, like, the orange splinter in your mind can get there in many different ways. And once it gets in there, it starts changing things. And, you know, maybe at the end of the day, like all these people will, or many of these people in these positions will be kind of transformed in that way. And I guess, I mean, maybe their only option then would be to eject from their position because maybe they wouldn't be able to like allow themselves to engage in certain behavior after having the orange epiphany. But I don't know. Why do you bring it up? Just a, another clown world job description that popped up? I, I just find it hilarious. Like they, they expect this person to have chief in their title 
live in DC, report to the treasury in a job where their job is to analyze the effects of sanctions on foreign governments and get paid 150000 and responsibility. And I, anyway, I, I just, I just find it hilarious that, that it's so obvious to me that it's like, uh, this is for a puppet. This is for, you know, the cousin of a Senator or something who's already got the risk profile for that kind of a job. Um, but anyway, that, that, that's why I bring it up. Welcome to Washington. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you're not going to get a person in that job who has any sort of integrity or like belief in actual, um, outcomes, you know, it's just, it's just so transparent. And I, I, that's why I thought it was funny. But to your point about Bitcoin, it's like, because that was my first thought was like, well, obviously the person who takes this job uh, is going to be targeted by foreign governments who would really like to have your report say that the sanctions are ineffective so mm -hmm. that the sanctions get taken away. And how are, how are they going to pay you? Well, they can't use the banking system, right? So, but like I said, I mean, that, that person would just be under, they're either going to take the grease or or they're going to be threatened. Like that's the way the, that that world operates. So yeah. th that's why I think it's just going to be a puppet. Sorry. No, I mean, I, I agree, but you're basically uh, describing every single, you know, bureaucratic or government job in existence. I mean, they're all yeah. just puppets and they all have to set aside their own values and all that kind of stuff and subjugate their integrity to the machine. You You've run so apart from Ron Paul. What's that? everyone apart from ron paul yeah yeah but i guess he's well yeah he's a part of the government i guess is he still a congressman uh, i'm not too sure he's but he is retired the only by now no? that comes to mind yeah for sure i mean don't get me wrong there's some there's some good people in there especially if you were an elected representative right that's that seems to be part of the filter right because it in in some cases you're appealing to you know, people that are halfway sensible and, and some good people get through. Uh, but if you're part of the, like the quote unquote deep state or the bureaucratic machine or whatever, then, you know, you're, you're just a cog in a wheel. And are you going to take the paycheck and the cushy job and uh, the several, you know, the retirement benefits and health insurance, or are you going to stick to your principles and 99% of people in the world today are going to do the former yeah. Yeah. The joys of democracy. Yeah. Unless they have a nice little Bitcoin stack. And as you know, hyper Bitcoinization continues, they have more and more confidence to flip the bird to their employer and say, you know what, I'm going to do what feels more right to me. Yeah, I would have thought that would have been the case. But then you saw in the Lummis bill that she's trying to pass off Ethereum and give them a get out of jail free ticket, essentially. What, as well I, I didn't i'm not familiar with it what was the, the the details she was just trying to say that ethereum's a commodity um and it's not a security essentially and trying to sneak that into the bill and it's just like that's just a weird stance for a, a bitcoin politician um you would have thought that it, she would have tried to delineate the two and work on solely Bitcoin. what do you but, think the reasoning was it was she just trying to appeal to the two major camps and get the support from both? Or what was the chatter around that, the thinking behind that decision? Um, probably what you were saying there, but like, is she taking into account that like the centralized security is like, the, it's either going to be 
captured by the state and now it's kind of fighting as like that's its only method of survival and it's its only real purpose is to birth any sort of cbdc so even trying to add that in there just to get this bill across the line is like you know the pitfalls of you know democracy in the first place isn't it it's always the lesser of the evils and yeah trying to get across the line by force is it is there a case to be made and like i'm totally just thinking out loud here that lumping them in together is actually could actually there could be a benefit to it because you could because ethereum is so captured and capturable that like you could maybe some some elements within the state would be like oh i mean they're the same thing and now we we kind of have some degree of regulatory oversight or control not realizing that they're very different you know like would it pacify them for a period of time i guess is what i'm asking yeah it could be seen as trying to buy time no, there's always these little nuances involved, um, but the joys of being a Bitcoiner is none of the stuff really applies. Yeah. What? So what was the bill? It was like no cap gains uh, under a certain spending limit, something like that. Was that yeah, the major part? And I think the transaction limit was like super low. It was like sixty-five bucks or something. Right. So you can <laughs> you can spend you can spend 65 bucks or less without us taking a share you peasant basically <laughs> yeah it's like um i was having this conversation with uh, my stepfather a few weeks ago um and we we're talking about like you know democracy governance constitutional republic versus uh national democracy and stuff and it was like fascinating because towards the end of it it's like oh it's not going to be this like utopia where you don't pay taxes i was like well what was the Boston Tea Party, like how was America founded? Was it not yeah. for those same principles? And then you look around and you're like, the average amount of tax, if you add them all up and then do like a median of each state is like 50% or higher anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, and even so, I, I was looking at this and you guys might be able to correct me or be more specific, but I, I was looking at like turn of the century uh, tax rates and stuff like that. And I think you know, like early 1900s and I guess before, uh, there was effectively no income taxes. And I think the 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 rate at which it was introduced, like when it was first introduced, and it might have been like 7% was the maximum and uh, inflation adjusted the, I, I think it was an income, not a wealth tax. I, again, I have to make sure, but the inflation adjusted income was like $4 million a year on, on which the tax was applied. So Correct. like, isn't that crazy? Like, you know, unless you yeah. were making, so you're making 4 million bucks a year and then you pay 7% tax. And that was like, you know, basically the only tax. And if you're a normal person making inflation adjusted, I don't know, 50 to hundred K a year, I pres I think it was like effectively zero. Yeah. Jimbo, and you seem to be shaking. Do you guys know and if that's 19. accurate? Uh, it sounds about right, if I recall correctly. It was brought in 1913, the same year as the Federal Reserve, and it yeah. was introduced as a way to make sure the rich pay their share. Um, and ironically, led us to, to where we are, whereas mm. like the poor people pay the most in tax. Um, yeah. But I think it was something along those lines, but I can't remember the exact figures off the top of the dome. Yeah, the number that pops into my head is the top 3% that it was supposed to only affect like 97% of people were under whatever that boundary was. If it was $4 million, I can't say, but that it was supposed to only affect the top 3% of 
of earners um, when it was rolled out, which is typical of, you know, taxation is like, oh yeah, this is just going to affect the rich. And then through the wonders of inflation, it affects everyone. Cast an increasingly broader net. Yeah. You know, I've had a lot of those conversations too. And, and we're just, so many people are stuck inside the current paradigm and they can't envision a world outside of it. Even, even when there's historical precedents that they could easily look back on and, and, and see, right. It's not like we're proposing here something, at least not in all cases, proposing something that has never, has no precedent that's never been done. I mean, you can look back to periods and, and be like, you know, society doesn't fall apart when you're not taking half of people's paycheck, you know, like, in fact, it actually, you can make a strong case that it worked much better. But John, uh, what about the roads? Who will build the roads? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. But, but to, inversely, but, though, you also have historical data that shows that every paper currency has ruined sure. everything it touched. Mm. Yeah, but people don't give a fuck. I mean, people don't allow historical precedent or logic and reason to conflict with the world that is in front of them. It's kind of like Morpheus, where he's like, people are so inured by the system that they'll Yeah, well, it's exactly like that. I mean, that's why the Matrix is is so great for plucking metaphors and applying them, you know, to so many things that are happening happening today. It's such a great documentary. Yeah, yeah. It's so funny. I try to watch that movie all the time, but I've watched it like 20 times. And when I propose, when I'm, you know, when I ask my girlfriend, I was like, what do you want to watch tonight? And she's like, oh, I don't know. Let's put on a documentary or this or that. I'm like, how about the matrix again? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But the, the, the point like in those conversations, cause it, it sounds like we're discussing utopia when we kind of invoke Bitcoin and all the wonderful things it's going to ameliorate and fix. Um, but the broader point is like, it doesn't even matter, right? If this thesis plays out, I mean, Bitcoin is like, Bitcoin is tax these nuts technology, basically. You know, <laughs> that's what it's meant to be. And so more capital and wealth that goes into the inviolable domain, the less there is in the viable domain. And that means the less there is to support those massive bureaucracies and those taxing agents and all that kind of stuff. So if Bitcoin survives, it just means like it's just a matter of time before more capital flows towards less viable. And that that just means over the course of time, there's going to be less taxes paid. There's going to be less uh, institutions living off tax revenue. And that just means the state is going to shrink to a much smaller size. Over Now, I don't know if it takes 10 or 100 years, but I don't see how it can be any other way. I think the principle of... Um... We overestimate how much we can do in a year and underestimate how much we can do in 10 sort of applies to this where it's like, mm. it's, it's obviously speeding up very quickly. I mean, if we look around globally and see, you know, gas prices going through the roof, uh, energy shortages in Sri Lanka and the rest of it in Europe now, and then you see like the food sort of stuff getting affected by that too, some power plants and like manufacturing companies having to shut down because of that. That to me indicates that like it's a it's speeding up this process of like I don't know what else to call it other than like the Great Reset. Um, mm. It's sort of like hurriedly coming towards our direction, and the more it comes towards that direction, the more uncertainty there is for people to, who are trying to have some sort of savings or wealth outside of that system. And the more pressure there is there, 
the faster this wheel sort of turns for reasons you just mentioned as well. Yes, but is it, are you saying that those are all reasons why this may happen sooner than we would expect? Correct. Yeah, especially once like the m more valuable figures start doing that, um, like that counts for millions of of lower socioeconomic valuable people, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. um, doing it. And it's just like, it's that guy who's partying at the concert by himself. And then all of a sudden more people <laughs> join him. But like, if you think about that for billionaires, like things start stampeding pretty damn quick. I mean, if one man, George Soros, can break the Bank of England, what can America's billionaires do? Mm. And what other choice do they have? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the punchline, right? Eventually, again, just by virtue of the fact you have another domain where capital is not only less viable, like way less viable, but also more like equally useful, if not more, right? So you, you have the twin benefit. You're not just sequestering capital to get it, to keep it out of the reach of the people that, you know, would seek to take it, but you're putting it into a, a another productive and increasingly productive domain. And so with those two extremely strong incentives, you know, I, I, I totally agree. It's just, it's just a matter of time. And that, and that the option is there, it's just going to keep recurring to people when, they encounter this problem. Doesn't matter where you are in the socioeconomic ladder. Like you, you'll encounter this problem, and you'll say, "What are my options?" I mean, some people won't, right? And they'll just be total victims to circumstance, and that's shitty. But it's also in part on them. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people will see, like, "All right, this is the problem. What are the options?" And you know, the Bitcoin, the the bright orange. Uh, you know, the bright orange sign is just getting bigger and brighter all the time. And I think, you know, people will funnel into it increasingly and, and we'll get back to a, a far more righteous state where, you know, whatever form of governance. So like when this process plays out and the state is less able to steal from people to fund, you know, their activities, well, again, it'll shrink. What size? Who knows? Right. Like, you know, I know a lot of people have different philosophies on, on what it should be, but presumably, you know, there'll still be a role for managing the monopoly on violence, let's say, or maybe, you know, so people will still want to coordinate in certain manner that can't be potentially uh, organized or coordinated uh, like by, by free market participants. Maybe, I don't know, but like, I think the punchline is, is like, and the reason why I use the term righteous is because we'll get back to a place where, those people are actually engaging in a system that they have approved of, right? Not just cast a vote once every four years or once every two years and then have no say in anything that happens in between, you know? So, yeah. And the difference between like that being scaled up to a national version versus like a local jurisdiction where they vote for whatever policies that they all, you know, and even then it's still democracy and you're going to have these people that are well positioned for that transition into you know, the whole age where it's like, I can earn whatever income if I'm capable in whatever jurisdiction. And so therefore these jurisdictions have to compete. And those people who are the most productive have the most sort of weight because they have the most economic resources at, at hand. Mm -hmm. Like if the local um, sort of de democratic rule is like oh we actually think you should pay more because you have more 
all of a sudden the ease now to actually be like, actually, I think Costa Rica is calling my name. Um, I'll see you guys later. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I was like, it's going to be real fascinating to see how that pans out. And it's also kind of cool to see that there's a lot of infighting at the moment with the whole like uh, Davos central banking sort of UN uh, group mm. where you see that like, I don't know, have you followed Tom Luongo's thesis? Uh, it, no. Who's that? See the Tom Luongo the Blink One Eighty Two like guy? No, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, he, he's like a geopolitical. That's Tom DeLong, I think. Yeah, yeah, macro sort of guy. Um, but what he and um another dirtbag called Phil have been noticing is that like the Fed uh re-indexed its debt domestically from LIBOR to SOFA. Um, so that just means that if they raise rates that foreign powers can't raise rates in conjunction for the US domestic debt. Mm -hmm. um, and so like it enables them to essentially like destroy the offshore dollar market. And it was that market, which was funding a whole lot of this. Um, I see. Right, right. So basically the Fed versus the WEF or the, you know, the European Correct. interest sort of thing. And so the, the Fed has to sort of destroy um, the ECB because that's and the offshore dollar markets because that's what's sort of funding the CBDC um, style takeover that they're attempting and the Fed being backed by the New York boys commercial banking interest even though like JP Morgan helped fund a whole lot of transhumanism sort of stuff they were like um, if a CBDC is introduced like our whole monopoly is made redundant yeah, no, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to pan out. So now you're watching like those two giants in fight and eventually you just watch rats jump ship. It's going to be yeah. awesome. I mean, it's, it's a fine or it's an interesting theory, I guess. Um, there's a, you know, it's, it's reasonably logical and rational. By the way, if you guys can hear that beeping and anyone listening, I apologize. The power is currently out here and that's what's keeping the uh, the Wi-Fi going. So, uh Please. My bad. But yeah, no, it's an interesting theory, but also, I don't know, man, like I, I have a, a natural interest in how everything works. So like, th that's why I, I'm always going to have some base level interest in like those sorts of conversations and, and theorizing, but also I'm like the Bitcoin Zen, you know, when you're so, you know, when you step through that portal and you're so fully into that other domain like how relevant is all that stuff you know like and, and i'm not saying we've all like being in completely in bitcoin land you know we still have meat space lives and the machinations that are happening politically around us have effects on us of course and all that stuff but as it pertains to like financial machinations and our own you know uh efforts to optimize our own situation um how relevant do you think that kind of stuff is? You know, like I watched right before this, I watched Jay Powell's speak, uh, speech because like I'm just kind of fascinated by the language he uses and what they're going to do. And, you know, I like to be informed, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't change anything yes, for me. No. It changes some of your economic calculations if you're living in America. For instance, he said that um, housing prices are way too high and that's going to have to come down. He's sort of alluded to um, the fact that there'll be no Fed 
reversal, no Fed put. And so um, if you're looking to buy a house, you're looking to buy a car or anything of like significant value to you, um, then these things are relatively important because the Fed is trying to retain the dollar hegemony, the international hegemony. Um, and in order to do that, it has to sort of sacrifice the domestic market, so equities and housing. Mm. Um, so if your economic resources and your wealth is tied up in those assets, then it's pretty relevant. Well, yeah. When I said myself, I wouldn't, I didn't mean like yeah. the average person. I meant me. Like, of course, <laughs> yeah. if, if, if you're a normie and you have a stock portfolio and you have a mortgage and all that kind of stuff, you know, I get it. What I'm saying is like being so all in, in, in Bitcoin and having uh, constructed a life that is maximally, let's say adaptable, you know, this stuff is mostly irrelevant, right? Which is why like, I get caught up in it a lot too, but I, I try to bring my focus back to things that are actually relevant, right? That are actually either meaningful or impactful or productive because it's so easy to get, I mean, when as we're barreling into like more and more clown world and as things, you know, degrade even more, there's going to be more and more, re like the drama of it all just pulls you in, right? Whether it's on Twitter or Tucker Carlson or, you know, I just watched this insane uh, Rashida Tlaib uh, video that's going around on Twitter now about her questioning like the banking interests about funding oil and gas, uh, you know, investments and businesses. I mean, it's just, it's all so insane. And you you can like, you can spend a whole day just consuming that garbage, but where does it leave you? I mean, it doesn't leave you any better off, right? So, and I think a lot of Bitcoiners are kind of starting or maybe not even starting have, have realized that for a long time. Like you got to, be pretty careful about curating your focus and try to direct it towards things that are actually going to move the needle, not just the, you know, the madhouse that is the current world, because this is just a downward spiral, right? Like the worse it gets, the more people are going to demand from the incompetent, corrupt politicians that delivered them the circumstance that they're unhappy with in the first place, you know, and it just, that just happens until something breaks and, it's, That's you know, the you gotta, old. You be careful um, how much attention you give to it. The hard times make strong men. Strong men make good times. Good times make weak men. Weak men make hard times. Like that philosophy, and then you overlay that over like the fourth turning, the short-term debt cycles and long-term debt cycles. It's like oh, okay, this just keeps on happening. Yeah. Um, it it kind of makes me wonder though, like if if it goes to a Bitcoin standard and as you say, there's going to be some form of governance, like surely uh, there'll be some form of rent sinking that's and in, like inevitably uh, implemented, right? People will find a way. Give me an example. Of, well, I'm not saying you're wrong, but I'm just curious what you're thinking of. I mean, if we can have America, the constitutional Republic, um, primed off the Boston Tea Party, not paying taxes, what have you, turn into a national democracy where both presidents are saying that others are, you know, a terrorist or an extremist and a threat to the country. Like, if that can happen to the most powerful empire today, then, like, are we really thinking that these small, more fractioned sort of communities are going to be able to, like, not have that rent-seeking inevitably introduced? Like there's always going to be a return on violence, even if you can be like, oh, I lost it. And it's like, okay, boof, anyone else lo like lose theirs? 
Like it, there will be some form of rent seeking uh, inevitably oh. introduced. Yeah. Don't so, you think? so I, can I jump in? Cause sure. this ties yes. back, this ties back to um, something uh, John, you were talking about, about the two realms, right? There's like the Bitcoin realm and then there's the, the everything else realm. And the way that I've been explaining it lately is that in Bitcoin, ownership is knowledge. You either know the keys or you don't, and that's it. And that knowledge can either be encoded in the world, you know, written down on a piece of paper or, you know, in a hardware wallet or something, or, and, or it can be in your head. And as long as some of that knowledge is in your head, it's untakeable. Like somebody can, if you have a, say a gold coin, something physical, they can kill you and take the gold coin, right? Your money or your life. In a Bitcoin world, where some of the knowledge is in your head of what you own, if they kill you, all they've done is made it less likely that they will ever get your Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. So they can still kill you, right? But they can't take your Bitcoin. And it is the first thing that humanity has ever had with that property. The current geopolitical structure of nation states is the pinnacle of a world in which it is possible where superior violence can take property. If you kill the farmer, you get the farm. And so as a result, you create a defensive coalition to guard the farm, right? You work together. And then the largest defensive coalition is what wins, which currently is the United States in terms of, of violence under command. Bitcoin allows you to own something where the ownership is knowledge and all the force in the known universe, all the force in, in the command of the solar system is not enough to take it from you. And it's the only thing with that property. It's That's going kind to be dependent though, Jimbo. Don't you think like it's dependent on the individual in the sense that someone comes to your house and is like, hey, here's your kids and your wife lined up. You're going to give me those words. Realistically, who's not going to give that? It's going to, it will be the case. It will be the case that Bitcoin is headed towards the people who are willing to die, right? Because, and so, so in that scenario, like somebody comes to your house, blah, blah, blah. So this is where you have like a two-pronged approach. People are in this country anyway, uh, very into firearms, right? Second amendment, like, and the purpose of a firearm is to protect yourself and to protect, you know, your kind of immediate property, right? Somebody, it, what it allows you to do is it allows you to take an altercation and escalate it to the point of death, yours or, or the assailants, right? Somebody's going to die in this scenario, right? That's what guns allow you to do. It allows you not to be kidnapped like, like your scenario. So that's the other half. So Bitcoin allows you to die with your coins. The great pharaohs of Egypt did not have this ability. They, they got their tombs robbed. But you can take your Bitcoin with you to the grave. The firearms, the other piece of it, the protection of your physical person allows you to escalate the conflict to the point of death. And so as a result of those properties, Bitcoin will accrue to those who are willing to shed this mortal coil and take it with them. The shadowy supercoda uh, super extremists. Yeah, but, but that's the thing is like the, there's nothing the state can do. They, if, if you are willing to defend your person and you are willing to take it with you, it cannot be seized, right? Yeah. And so this, get, this gets back to the value question. So right now, the market doesn't value that very highly. I mean, 
every day that we're under a million dollars per coin, that we're under sats head parity is a mystery to me. I don't understand because to me, the ability to have something where ownership is knowledge is so that people will say like, oh yeah, it's everything divided by 21 million. It's like, no, that's a false equivalence. That assumes that the Bitcoin is only worth what everything else is worth. But in my opinion, it could be worth considerably more. The value of Bitcoin is how much do you want something that nobody can take like ever, right? That's the value of Bitcoin. And it's astronomical. But because humanity has never had a, an item with those properties, it's really hard to grok. Everyone lives in this world where you put your money in the bank, right? And the, it's the bank's money. If you buy stock, it's not yours. It's off in some database somewhere. And, and even if you had a certificate, it's based on the um, honoring of some corporate entity. And then your ownership claim that is you know, to that corporate entity is adjudicated by a legal system that you have no say over, right? All, there's all these intermediaries everywhere. It's like, it's like intermediaries all throughout. But now we have something where it's like, no, no, you know these words and that's it. That, that's the ownership. And if you die, you take them with you. And so it's, it's going to take people some time, but the value of that is incalculable. And so again, back to John's point about the two realms, I don't know how long it's going to take everyone to figure out that you don't have to trust people anymore. You don't have to give up all your sovereignty just to have some wealth in this world. You can have something that is unseizable. Uh, and the value of that, again, is just astronomical. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's nuts. Yeah, I, I totally agree with all that. I think maybe the distinction, Kiwi, that you were making was like, and, and maybe the, there has to be a distinction between rent seeking and coercion and, you know, wherever the line there is, because like, fiat money and all the institutions that bubble up around it certainly uh, incentivize rent seeking in, in various forms, right? But if you eliminate that entirely, then the only means by, and, and to the point Jimbo was making, which again is, is insanely profound and so few people appreciate it, that for the first time ever, the most concentrated form of your wealth, i.e. money, and you, however we wanted to find that, have become one. There's no separation between them. There was always an incentive to separate you from your property. And you didn't necessarily, I mean, and actually that provided an incentive to kill the person, right? So the incentives, the return on violence was much higher because you could just kill the person and then take their property. Now that incentive, that return on violence is dramatically lower because sure, you can still coerce and threaten and, and maybe extract that information from someone, but there's no guarantee that if you kill them, you'll get it. In fact, there's odds are if you kill them, you won't get it. And so that is a huge difference between killing someone and almost guaranteeing that you are able to uh, get their property as a result of doing that. And so, and then of course, there's a lot of in between, right? Like if whatever, whoever controls the monopoly on violence started taking those measures en masse, how quickly would people coordinate to resist that in a, in a you know, in some way, not only just in, in their individual ways of trying to get out of harm's way. But like, if, if the abuse of the monopoly on violence became so obvious that people were going around threatening and coercing people to get information out of their brains, you would think that at least in places where there was a capacity, i.e. particularly in the US, there would be a coordinated effort to push back against that. So I think, um, yeah, I mean- I don't know I, about that, Don. Uh, in the sense part? that, well- The pushback? Yeah, and expecting like something to come from the masses in that regard. Like if we think back to early 2020, I never thought that there would be lockdowns and you're fucking made to wear a face like that doesn't do anything. 
and that in order to travel, you'd have to get a vaccine that doesn't work. Like I never thought any of that stuff would ever occur, especially in the US. And so my sort of faith in like any sort of organized um, pushback is like, yeah, pretty minimal at this point. But Well, we, we got to be, so I don't know what timeline we're talking about, right? Because presumably the stage at which that might occur, I think the state might have been starved more than it is currently, right? It's capacity to steal from people by virtue of more people have having made that shift into the Bitcoin domain means that maybe there is some shrinkage or some incapacity already. So like, I'm not saying necessarily that would work today because I agree with you. And like, of course, like the last two years are incredibly, I mean, condemning on the capacity of people to push back against things that are wrong or whatever. But I'm just saying, like, however, however long it takes for this to play out, I think more people will choose to go into that domain that will starve, you know, the state of its ability to fund itself. It'll become increasingly desperate. This, you know, the, the Bitcoin world. Be and, and, and like a lot of those people in the early days will be more difficult to nail down. Right. They'll they'll the sovereign individual thesis will they'll be playing out that thesis effectively. But over the course of time, like when the balance really shifts, you know, because we were talking about a kind of future where you were saying, like, even in a hyper Bitcoinized world, what will rent seeking look like? You know, I, I think it'll look very different. And I think in that type of a world where so many people have established greater sovereignty for themselves and they're more capable of, of you know, um, maintaining that sovereignty and they're more thoughtful about it, whatever number, whatever proportion of people that is. I think there would be more natural pushback at ob abject and obvious abuses of whatever is left over of the monopoly on violence and whoever's administering it. True. And everything comes home to roost eventually. And if you think about it in regards to like defensive technologies, like I don't know if you saw Joe Rogers recent um, video that he did at the underground Citadel on 3d printing. Guns I haven't, no, I haven't seen it yet. Oh. I got to watch it though. It's unreal to watch that progression. And then if you think about like the turrets and drones that can be remotely operated, like there is going to be some weird sort of skirmishes go on for sure. Um, I, I just don't know how it's going to like that, that'll play out. So that's why I'm sort of fascinated. I kind of like asked that question initially kind of like to provoke the conversation. I don't think that it will be like, absent of rent seeking i think there'll be like some form of it i don't know what it would look like um can, can but I... like the return on violence is reduced heavily the ability to defend yourself with superior technology is better every day just... and the ability to remove yourself from the jurisdiction that's you know yeah. more oppressive is like is way more in favor of the individual now too right you don't have to close yeah. off bank accounts send money do whatever you can just up sticks and leave right so that creates a, a lot more pressure on, or, you know, a lot more incentive to behave well on whoever's administering the, the monopoly on violence too. It's like three books conjoined, uh, the sovereign individual, the price of tomorrow and the Bitcoin standard sort of facilitates this like maximum power to the individual that, you know, Ayn Rand would have a wet dream over. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Jimbo, you had something you want to say? Uh, yeah, we were talking earlier about um, the effective tax rate. You know, if you if you add up all the taxes, the the thing that so a while ago when I heard about MMT, I looked into it. And the thing is, MMT is two parts. It is a description of the world and prescriptions based on that description. 
The description part I actually think is correct. And so the description part of MMT says the state doesn't actually need money. They don't tax you because they need money. They make the money. They buy fiat. They declare what money is. So then what, you know, then that leads to the question, why do you, why do you have taxes? Because the state doesn't actually need money. What they need is you. They need you to do work. They need physical things. So we talk about this tax rate, like how much, you know, how much of people's livelihood is being drained off by this state enterprise. And so I think that if people had actually all of that value that is being drained off by the state, the things that we buy, the things that we that make a good life that you that you consume, uh, or that you just you know use and enjoy, those things would cost less. You'd have more quality because you know you'd have more value to to use. And so again, going back to this idea that Bitcoin is the thing that you uh, that is un inviolable. It, it's not it's not takeable by force. You have this natural balance that goes on. So on the one hand, you might have people who want to rent, seek, and bring violence. The people to whom that violence might be done might say, okay, well, there's a gang, there's a gang in this area that wants to squeeze me for money. I'll go somewhere else. And, all you, and you can sell your property there immediately if you want. Take your Bitcoin and leave. Go somewhere else. Like, or <laughs> send your Bitcoin to somebody else so it's not even on your person. It's like, sorry, I sent it to my buddy. Like, he's over in Australia. Like, I can't do anything. There's nothing you can do. You want to get on a plane and go attack him? Fine, that's fine. So you have this like hot potato concept where you can just send it to your family or your friends if you need to, to get out of Dodge. So what that means is that people who would try to rent seek and would try to like impose a forceful um, regime on an area will suddenly find that all the people leave or just, they just don't have anything worth taking anymore. And the places that are more consensual, the places that are more amenable to consensual exchange are the places where people will naturally accrue and all the value and all the resources and intelligence will be in those places. So it's not that rent seeking will be impossible. It'll just be outcompeted. Like there just won't be any return on it. So then people will say, well, that, you know, I tried to squeeze these people and everybody disappeared. Well, I guess I shouldn't try that again. I wonder how I can get these people to do something, you know, give me some money, you know, in a, in a more, more consensual way. Yeah. And I think there are as much as I mostly attribute incompetence to, you know, the institution of, of governance and government, I think there are some that recognize that, which is why you might expect the most extreme measures taken to, you know, inhibit that or, or stop that in some capacity to be taken like now and in the medium term, like when this transition is really happening before it fully gathers steam. But no, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just going to be people seeking their best interest and they, they now have a tool that allows them to facilitate that more than any tool they've ever encountered before by orders of magnitude. And so when you, when you have that interest for yourself and now you have a tool to make it happen, all that's going to happen is it's more, more of that is going to happen on a, on a more rapid timeline. And um, yeah, like, I mean, I mean, we've all read the sovereign individual, right? I mean, even they even invoke or they even bring up the, the utility of a global pandemic as a means to kind of stop the flow of people, right? And like you'd you'd bring that up today to you know any normie and be like, well, that's absurd. And I'm not even like, let's not even be in the realm of conspiracy here. I'm not even saying like it would have consciously been invoked for that reason necessarily, but just the the circumstance. Right. That's shifting so quickly where the, you know, the legacy institutions of power and government government are losing their grasp on things. And so they would naturally capitalize on anything that happens that would allow them 
to maintain a grasp or to tighten that grasp. And whether it's a pandemic or whether it's, you know, a, a, you know, climate change narrative or whatever it is, they'll, they'll even the, 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 the morons among them, like, you know, the Rashida video that I referenced earlier will jump on it because, you know, it's, it's a means for them to either one, you know, maintain control or two, uh, feign virtue by acting like they're using their position of power to do something good in the world, which, you know, usually, usually has the opposite effect. So, um, I think that, no, no, go ahead. (laughs) Well, um, I, I like everything you're saying. And, um, I think you're right that if, if the state were an entity, it would very much want to destroy Bitcoin. The one little pushback I would say is that in addition, there are people like the state is made of people and people have their own little skirmishes and they have their own goals and aspirations. And one of the easiest hedges one could do as a member of the state is to say, you know what, I'm just going to get a little Bitcoin right. just just in case, just as an insurance policy case doesn't work out. And then we get the magic of NGU and now suddenly a larger fraction of their portfolio is in Bitcoin. And now suddenly their interests are aligned with Bitcoin. Like, I don't, I don't know if I really want to see this thing fail anymore because now, now I'm worth way more. So that would be mm-hmm. my one little bit of pushback is like, I know that if the state were an entity or if all states collectively were an entity, obviously they would band together to destroy Bitcoin, but they're not. They're made of people. And that's why, that's why I tend to be bullish on uh, Bitcoin winning peacefully it's because individuals will defect kind of one at a time. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. What'd you say? I said, but it's a weapon, Jimbo. Remember, mining is, is a weapon. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that meme. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with that entirely. You know, this is an individual revolution, and it, it impacts people's lives individually, and everyone responds and can only respond to incentives as individuals. But I just mean that the the circumstance that's, you know, the current money and the however we wound up in this situation has a, a paradigm to it. And that paradigm is going to latch on to things that give it sustenance that allow it to survive. And that acts through people oftentimes even unbeknownst to them, which is why they'll just, you know, the, the whole agent metaphor in the matrix, here we are again, you know, another great metaphor. And I think that's, that's true. And what, you know, and that'll, it'll become more and more apparent that that is narrative rather than reality as people step into the Bitcoin world and they start to see things differently and they start to assess things differently and they start to realize, oh, there is an alternative, right? Because so much of people's kind of rigidity in their mindset and as a result, how they act in the world and the things that they attempt to do is, you know, almost by thinking that the world, like reality is reality. Like it's just objectively, this is how it is. And it, it almost ought to be that way because it is that way. And that's the strength of a paradigm, right? It, it makes you feel and think that it is reality. And like, you're just observing it objectively almost in a sense. And I think a lot of people would argue that. And then you, you know, you step into a domain or you're, you're introduced to a perspective that's so different. It's such a paradigm shift. And if, you know, even before you can appreciate all the different nuances of what those differences are, you're at least is impressed upon you. Oh, there's a different way of looking at things. There's a different way of, of doing things that's now been introduced to my perception, to my consciousness. And that alone, just the, just the introduction of a alternative can have pretty profound effects for how you, you know, how you judge, how you're seeing things and the validity of, of your perception and that kind of stuff. So 
Yeah, I, I, uh, I think that's going to increasingly happen. And as you said, Jimbo, it's like, it's going to be more and more apparent that choosing the latter, choosing the Bitcoin one, whether it's a jurisdiction or just, you know, the, the happiness and enthusiasm that, you know, the individuals that you observe in your life that have done that are experiencing, that's going to be an incentive. That's going to be compelling. That's going to be the sales pitch for people to do the same because you're not, you know, you're going to have these two things. Like one is degrading and one is you're paying more tax and getting less for it. And there's more violence in your community and your relationships are less genuine. And the madness is like, is more absurd all the time. And then there's this other place where it's the exact opposite, right? Things are more rational. Things are more logical. You have more freedom. You have more wealth. You have more options. You have more sincere relationships. You're healthier. You're feeling better about yourself. And like, that's a pretty- Everything's based on consent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's a pretty easy judge to make once you start seeing it. And I, you know, and I think that's how things are going to play out. There's a good, that's a good point. And like- the more that that plays out, John, the more that the state will lash out. And the more that the state tries to lash out, the more of that more sort apparent of the difference becomes, right? Yeah, exactly right. Um, it'll be weird because, like, the US, if it bans it, it's horrible for like medium long term strategy because then other countries will pick it up. If it doesn't ban it, though, it loses its dollar hegemony. And it's rent-seeking capability for like those who are, you know, largely dictating policy. So it's kind of like damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, and if you go down the latter path and actually start trying to get rid of it, all of your productive capital and people who possess that are going to start fleeing, as you, mm. you know, suggested. So <laughs> it's going to be crazy to watch this pan out because all of like, because it's it's truth you know like it's based on consent you can't be stolen from um through inflation etc so when they try like attack it like the the virtue signalers that try to attack it, it's like oh you don't care about consent you don't care about me too you don't you know it's just like they have no leg to stand on it's like oh but it consumes energy it's like okay and the military industrial complex doesn't fiat stealing your you know your wealth and putting you on this rat race doesn't consume energy it's just like there's no clear way of how you would attack it or try and like mobilize the masses against it right. so I, I it's gonna be fascinating watching it play out over the next few years what do yeah, you think I, some of the bigger like milestone um components would be on its on its way to sort of hyper bitcoinization Who's the question oh, for? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you go, Jimbo. You want to say something. Oh, yeah, it's okay. I, I uh, actually don't have a, a ready-made answer for that one. What, what, what are you going to say? Well, I mean, milestones, I'm not sure. I, I think things are going to get, I mean, expect the unexpected, I guess. You know, I think, I don't think there's much capacity for us being able to predict things. I think people will continue to try to follow their incentives and, and seek freedom. I mean, I genuinely think freedom is the ultimate incentive, even even for people that don't really recognize it in their life or, or even for people that are pursu pursuing it in the wrong way. Cause that's certainly, we don't always pursue things we want in the correct way. And so I think a lot of people probably recognize or would tacitly affirm the value of freedom, I, but perhaps they're not interpreting it or, or pursuing it the right way. But I think like, you know, agency, right? The ability to do what you think is right, I think is one of the strongest 
incentives. And to your point about damned if you do, damned if you don't, I genuinely, I mean, I agree with that. And I think that's the one of the really intriguing aspects about Bitcoin is that it's basically forcing people to do the right thing given a sufficient timeline. Because as you say, they'll be confronted like, okay, we ban it, we screw ourselves. We don't ban it. We lose what we currently have, this you know, fraudulent, unfair monopoly on things. Okay, so what are, what are, what's our only option? Your only option is to submit yourself to what's right. That's your option. And Bitcoin, by virtue of its permanence, by virtue of its absoluteness, uh, is is impressing that upon the world. And I mean, it's providing it to people who would who want it and are and willing to take it. But it's impressing it upon people who wouldn't, who don't want it, and wouldn't willingly take it. I mean, and how crazy is that? That a, a piece of technology is forcing, in a sense, what I think we would all, you know agree is a moral good on the world like it's forcing yeah. people to take to take and make that choice regardless of whether their own character would have done it absent that uh you know type of forcing or or uh or offer it's really interesting and that's kind of like a state level too did you see bukali's speech um at the un yesterday yeah yeah i did yeah, he's sort of saying the same thing. It's like uh, his house analogy was so fantastic um, to put things into perspective, being like, oh, you've got the wealthy neighbor um, and you're trying to make repairs to your house to make it better for everyone who lives under it. And your wealthy neighbor feels like he has to come over and tell you not to repair your house for God knows what reason. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's pretty classic. But like, is that another person who's, pursuing his perceived idea of freedom for him and his country, but perhaps doing it through the wrong mechanism because like they reduced a whole lot of their violence in that country and made it feasible for more tourism, et cetera. But saying that you're going to starve inmates um, so that their family members and members outside of that jail is like, it's pretty, pretty messed up situation. And like, who decides who's in jail and who's starving? Like it's still the monopoly on violence, even if it is a Bitcoin country. Yeah. I mean, some things are complicated. That one's yeah. because it's, it's so easy to just say, well, you know, there's certain immutable principles and this is how you should orient your life and, and stuff like that. And then you, you know, Bukele is a great example. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Is that, is that, method just or unjust well you could say well it's completely unjust how could you starve another person how could you remove you know due process for just because you think someone's a part of a violent gang so yeah that's a pretty good argument say well if you're the you're one of the family members of one of the victims of gang violence and you know your whole family's been murdered as a result maybe it seems just to you and so and then he, he is also potentially being someone who's trying to mediate this massive shift that we've been exploring that's happening, which is going from peak fiat, peak nation state in size and power and influence, recognizing that a reckoning is coming and attempting to be part of, and potentially, I mean, I, mean, I don't know what his true motives are, but potentially trying to be someone who's trying to be part of a 
reasonably stable transition from one to the other. And part of that might be his adoption of Bitcoin. And part of that might be his rhetoric and initial uh, overtures around freedom, you know? So, and like, would you want that responsibility to go from peak fiat and peak statehood to whatever the fuck Bitcoin is bringing us into? I mean, Absolutely I sure, I, I sure wouldn't. I'd rather <laughs> not do it for really myself. Would. Right. And there, there's, there's and certainly a certain condemnation to be, well, there's an argument to be had that people that want to assume that position, you know, maybe they have a certain character f uh, flaw or failing to presume that they should have that power or capacity over other people. But then you could e easily just say, yeah, well, what if they feel a sense of duty because they know that there's so much power in that position that if a good a better person doesn't attempt to occupy it, someone way worse will, and that will f facilitate even worse outcomes. You know, so there's there's an interesting conversation at a minimum on every kind of level of this stuff, or at least it seems to be. I'm not trying to put him through any purity test. I was just trying to highlight that that what he is doing in regards to starving them is a slippery slope, and also that it's a country that's transitioning to the the life raft but there's still some form or capability of rent seeking and monopolizing you know so it's oh there's a massive capability still because you know n none of the population effectively uses bitcoin right they haven't this only happened that that whole shrinking and rent seeking only happens when every individual within a jurisdiction or society has the capacity to say no right and now we're not there whatsoever but if every single person in El Salvador had 12 words in their head and they there was a Bitcoin circular economy and nobody could track anything anyways, and everyone was just doing cash transactions for all of their, you know, for exchanges and everything was volunteer, like then it would be hard for, you know, the monopoly on violence to rent seek in, in any broad capacity, I I think. You know, the different the 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 interesting question is what happens in the interim. I think. And to your, to the your comment about you're not trying to put Bukele through a purity test, like I kind of am. I mean, I'm I'm interested in discussing his character and what the character of people who would presume to uh take this task of being at the head of the monopoly on violence in whatever jurisdiction in this transition that we're ex experiencing. Like I think that's a valid conversation to have on who who should what type of people should be engaged in that and to what extent we should support them or not support them this is a reasonably interesting I'm conversation purity tests after i've applied that to a few people and humans being infallible all of a sudden i'd be like nope that person failed my purity test and then you like disregard them but they produce some amazing content and it's like if you focus on the concepts rather than the person then you tend to have a much more informed and totally. better curated but you know, i think that's stuff. That's an that's a immature emotional response to things. I think everyone, I mean, the whole you know kind of the Christian notion, and most religious notions are, you want to attempt to hold people to the highest standard possible, but you also want to attempt to understand and empathize and forgive for er times when they inevitably and forever m misstep on on that path. And I guess what you're looking for more than anything is that they're engaging that process with the utmost integrity and honesty, not that they're always going to engage it perfectly because nobody will. So I'm like, I'm all for purity tests, but not dismissing someone because they fail one of them. You know? Yeah. I like to, I like to keep it about 50, 50, uh, shit posts and walls of text that way. Uh, 
That way I'm guaranteed to be dismissed <laughs> by anybody who would dismiss me. Super cycle. <laughs> yeah. Boy, I called that wrong. Well, were you, you know, in the 100K, 200K, 300K cheerleading crowd? Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. Um, so what, what happened was when we, uh, we started to blast off in 2021, I was looking at the charts and, you know, projecting a 10 X increase from where we were at 20 K in early 2021, you know, we, and I said, okay, well, that's going to take us into the hundred thousands. And for me to get back to this milestones question to me, 300,000 per Bitcoin is like a, a key milestone. And the reason it's key is because at 300,000, you start to imagine a million, like, could it go to a million? Like, is that possible? And once that mental anchor is there, it becomes an attractor. And so, and then once you get to a million, that's when all bets are off. Because to me, at a million dollars for Bitcoin, it no longer makes sense to price it in, in dollars. You just go with like sat cent parity. It's a, it's a penny stock now. And then Every all the degenerate gamblers and all the hard money advocates are aligned on like yeah it's, it's a penny and it goes from you know one million to two million aka one cent to two cent per set overnight like that was my that was my mentality so I uh, I started advocating this view um, and calling it the super cycle theory which was okay once we get past a hundred thousand we need to get and surpass three hundred because then people will imagine a million and like rocket booster your way into like vertical vertical ascent. And then somehow we crapped out at 68,000 and now we're still measuring in tens of thousands of dollars. So we're in this. Excuse me, sir. Did we yes. get to 69? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. 69. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, so, so that, that, that unfortunately is, is where we're at is we're in this, we're in this awkward middle ground, you know, uh, 18,000, whatever it is today, 20, um, is too much for a random person to pay for, uh, crazy internet money. Uh, they think that oh, that's ridiculous. And you know, what about the environment and all this stuff? Um, and then, but after a million dollars, now it's a penny stock. And then now, now it's, now it's, you know, immediate explosion. So I, I miscalled it. I had no idea. And, um, <laughs> and it's fine. I'll, I'll keep pushing this meme forever, but, uh, but I don't know when now you happen. failed the purity test. You're going to yeah. be canceled. Yep. Cancel, <laughs> cancel me, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think anybody thought we would be at 18,000, uh, in the fall of 2022, now I, I've never engaged in price predictions because, you know, this I know the nature of this thing. And even though I mean, had you asked me like, you know, fifty, like what's what do you think is more likely that we'd be at a hundred k by now than eighteen k by now? Definitely would have said a hundred k. But you know, Bitcoin is still such a drop in the ocean. And and I, and as you said earlier, Jimbo, like, I it's hard for me to empathize with a world that's valuing this thing so little for what it offers, valuing it at this level at this point in time. Like, as you said, I mean, it's, it, well, I don't think there's anything more valuable, right? And and for all the benefits that it permits and um, it's, but it's, you know, it's kind of a commentary on, on where we're at and how blind people are to the problems that exist and how blind people are to the potential for resolution or, you know, potential solution that Bitcoin represents to many of those problems. And then layering on top of that, the potential for that Bitcoin represents for um, beneficial things that aren't even solutions to problems we have, but are, are just outright goods that we've never experienced before. Uh, you know, but again, I'm over, I'm like increasingly kind of overwhelmed with a sense of peace about it all. Like, 
it's all just proceeding apace, you know, and more education gets out there every day and more people are talking about it every day. And more important than anything, more people like us are being changed and oriented by it, right? We're changing the course of our lives. We're changing our work. We're changing our behavior. We're changing our perspective on things. We're changing the value that we bring to the world. We're changing the value of ourselves and our character and all that kind of stuff. And so like, we're not watching on the sidelines. This, this thing is us. We are what is happening here. Each one of us, each one of us who steps through that orange door into the orange domain. And, you know, maybe there'll never be a point where you're like, oh, there, it happened. That was the moment of global adoption. That was the moment of hyper-Bitcoinization. It will be a slow trickle of more and more people moving towards areas where there's more free, uh, freedom and moving to, towards areas where they can be more in control of their lives and where they're safer and where they can pursue what's most meaningful to them. And then, you know, you wake up year to year and you're like, wow, you know, that changed. I didn't, didn't kind of see it when it was happening, but that's different now. And that's different now. And, you know, 40 years, we'll, the four, the three of us will have this conversation. And if we're not all dead, then we'll probably look back and be like, huh, like when, when did that thing that we now recognize as definitively different, when was the time that that changed? And the answer will probably be, there's no definitive answer. Like, everything is always in flux and the change is always happening. And most often change doesn't happen on the timeline that we wish it would. We all, of course, you know, we all have high time preference in that regard, but can you like, things are all things considered, things are happening pretty damn fast, right? This is 13, we're 13 years into this and For there's, sure. a, there's a lot going one on. Of the things I love the most about it is like, it's all like for the Western world, it's those who are more ideologically driven that come to grok it earlier. Right. Um, but for the rest of the world, it's people who are pushed into it because of like rampant inflation or tyranny or, or what have you. And so like what I love about it is the selective adoption largely puts it in the hands of people who understand the qualms a lot better and they're the early adopters. And so usually you have that whole generational thing where the second generation may follow, but the third generation usually fucks it up and is spoiled or what have you. Um, but for the next like few generations, it's going to be people who understand the principles of like how we got here and why this is important. Um, and that, that's a huge change. So I'm looking totally. forward to seeing how that sort of permeates throughout each, you know, person's incentives and, and actions and, it's going to be pretty mad to see it happen. Totally. I mean, it's another one of those kind of filters, you know, the current and the filters that the incentives in the system create, right? So you're mentioning these rent seekers before and all these shitty politicians and bureaucrats and stuff like that. I mean, they are the, the current master incentive of the system, right? To get close to the monetary spigot and the power that, that, that permits is, are you like, are you morally flexible? Are you willing to bend on some of your, you know, principles and values? Are you willing to do whatever it takes, you know, for a paycheck or whatever? Can we appeal to your ego and your desire for power and all that kind of stuff? That's what the current master incentive of the system selects for. But what you're describing, Kiwi, is like a different incentive selecting for one, yes, necessity, but wrapped up in that is people that are curious and people that, you know, desire freedom for themselves, people that willingly opt in and value a system where everyone has is operating by the same rules. Nobody has an unfair advantage. And so the new, 
the emerging master incentive is selecting for an entirely different set of behaviors and personality traits and principles and values and morals, et cetera. And again, we'd all probably agree that they're the best ones. They're, they're very good ones rather than very bad ones. And so what kind of a world does that create when the master incentive is sending out signals to everybody and to the market that are based on principles and values like truth and freedom and fairness and goodness and honesty and integrity and all the other ones we could list? And consent. Like, yeah, you, you, you get a system predicated a, on that. Exactly. It's such a primary distinction where it's like the current system um, <laughs> it completely disregards consent fundamentally. And so anyone who like argues for it is already like arguing against the necessity for consent to be prevalent. And so it's just like a losing battle from the outset. Um, <laughs> It's just yes. such, such a weird thing to grok. <laughs> to realize you you're partially a slave. World. Yeah. And then you look around at clown world, it's like, oh, like that is just another you know, layer on top of the disregard for consent. Mm -hmm. And then they try to do it virtuously though, like as if they're representative of the people to disregard consent. Like there's a few questions that are just so like concise and just piercing for NPCs that it's just like, I, I love them for like, one of my favorite ones is like, how do you think they monopolize and debase the currency in the name of stability? How does that make sense to you? And then it's just like, there's nothing really you can say, like, is theft bad? Yes. Does consent matter? Yes. It's like, okay, well, let's apply it to this current model. <laughs> and it's just like falls apart on itself. Yeah. And then you go to this model, what, which they're trying to ostracize. <laughs> when that's the comparison, it's like, it, it's a really interesting dynamic. And, and, you know, you're saying that the return on violence and stuff is going to be reduced and people are going to be able to flee, et cetera. It will lead that way. But do you think there's like um, a significant threat to being like personally connected with it in like the short to medium term? Yeah, quite, quite possibly. Uh, yes and no. I, I think the, the problem is one of education. Like I said, I think, <laughs> I think you have to be willing to die and you have to be willing to defend yourself from death. If you're willing to do those two things, then you're fine. A lot of people are NIMS in the Bitcoin space and that's fine. You know, like it's great to like, you know, run a low profile. Um, I do to a, a certain extent, not as hardcore as some people, but um, at the same time, like your defensive capabilities have to be something beyond just hiding. Like you have to be able to stand there and say, you can kill me, but you're not getting my Bitcoin. And that's, I think that's a personal, I mean, I've gone through that process and I think a lot of people need to go through it. The other thing is you don't have to die because let me, let me give you an example. So I, I don't know uh, to what degree the tech, the audience of this will understand what I'm about to say, but when you send a transaction in Bitcoin, one of the fields on the transaction is uh, the minimum block height, the height at which this transaction will be valid. Okay. So one thing you can do, what that allows you to do is you can make a transaction that won't be valid for you know, a hundred thousand blocks, like a year, a year in the future, whatever, however, however long it is, pick, pick a, pick a time frame, six months. So you make a transaction and it won't be valid for six months. 
you can sign that transaction and email it to somebody else and say, okay, this transaction is not good now, but six months from now, you could drop this on the blockchain and, and you'll get the funds, right? Then if you just move any of the UTXOs that are involved in that transaction beforehand, that transaction becomes invalid because it would try to double spend. It would try to move a UTXO twice. So what this allows you to do is let you do a dead man switch where you can email to your next of kin or whoever a transaction that would, would pay them in the event of your disappearance. And so, yeah, you can just, you can know without doing anything that, that it's going to be transferred. You could even sign a transaction that will send it now, but don't, don't email it to them. Just keep an encrypted copy. Then if shit hits the fan and you know, the, the mobs are coming to your door, you just go ahead and send it. Boom. Now it's sent. Like now, now I don't have it anymore. Like you, if you kill me, I, I don't have it. It's gone. Right. Just so, make sure IBF is turned off. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to have, um, have your, your transaction overrun, uh, by your own transaction. So my, my point is like the tools are there. The UX is horrible. Like the UX for doing these types of things that I'm talking about are not, don't make it easy, but one could imagine a better UX. That's like, Here's the Bitcoin insurance policy UX. We're going to help you build an insurance policy that works for you. Do you want a transaction that has these properties? Do you want a transaction that has these properties? When are you going to come back and sign your next one? Like, let's develop a process for you, almost like TurboTax, but for your Bitcoin insurance, right? And you just answer a bunch of checkboxes. Then it's like, okay, you need to sign this, sign this, sign this, email this to whoever, email this to whoever, save a encrypted copy of this. It like, gives you an instruction booklet. And then all you got to do is carry out the instructions. And now you are impervious to death. Like, you, I mean- Obviously, you can still die, but your Bitcoin holdings are impervious. Like they can be transferred. Those tools exist today. They've existed for a long time. It doesn't require any new soft forks or anything. It just requires better UX and understanding the tools that are available. So, anyway, I'm super bullish on all that stuff. And when and if uh, we ever hit this super cycle, I had predicted, I'll take a good year off. And just, I'm a software engineer, so my 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 uh, my job. So I would I would be developing this stuff. But you know, well, if uh, that would be awesome because more solutions like that are needed, right? Because it's kind of a patchwork now and nothing is really <clears throat> super ideal, but like, and you know, dead man switches in the past have relied on, you know, certain email servers perhaps and this and that. But if you could, if you could do a dead man switch on, you know, with a Bitcoin signed transaction, then, you know, you're not relying on, you're relying on the most reliable thing, which is the Bitcoin blockchain itself, right? And yes. so that would be awesome. And that would be a really tidy way to handle that issue. Yeah. I mean, you can do it right now today. If you, so like if you have Sparrow or Electrum wallet, either of those will let you modify the, um, the lock time. So, I mean, yeah, it's just not, it's just not easy. And then you have to take a signed transaction file and email it to somebody and then explain to them, Hey, air, by the way, you know? Yeah. So work, work has to be done on the, on the UX, but in principle, it's brilliant. Like that having that capability is incredible. And, yeah, it solves one of the big the big problems of inheritance and 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 that capacity also influences the the returns on and incentives to violence, right? Knowing that exactly. people could have structured things in that way. Um so, you know, and and Kiwi to to your point like or to your question, like I don't know how much risk public bitcoiners are taking these days. I mean, a lot of people own bitcoin, right? So it would be quite a a crackdown to or quite a effort to crack down on anyone who owns or has ever been public about Bitcoin. So like I lean towards that not happening, but at the same time, realizing what scale of threat this is to, you know, the existing power structures, 
it's hard for me to think that some form of crackdown doesn't come. Um, you know, and so, and, and to your point about like clown world, like that system of incentives that the, this current system has generated creates all the conditions for that absurd asinine behavior we see in clown world, right? Like the whole, how people have abdicated so much of their responsibility in so many areas of their life to other people. And how, as a result of that, they, they're getting these signals that like your agency and your logic and your decision-making doesn't really matter. You, you don't really need to worry about refining that because you don't, you're not in control anyways. So just sit there and watch the TV and eat the shit and don't think about things. We'll take care of it all. And how much does that eat away at your soul? What does that take from you that is like so fundamentally important? And I would say a lot. And as a result, your, your psyche just spits out these, it, it, it creates a, a neuroses, right? Of your psyche. And it creates all these neurotic behaviors that we see in the world today. So I, I don't have much faith in persuasion in terms of bringing about hyper-Bitcoinization because like we can't, you know, the discourse out in Normyland is like, could you tell me what a man or a woman is? No, I'm afraid not. Okay. If we can't get that, then we ain't going nowhere with, you know, the whole money and state and thing, you know, so, and, and even with people that are more reasonable, because I'm being a bit tongue in cheek there, persuasion has never been super, a super effective thing for me when I try to, you know, articulate the benefits of Bitcoin to people. What's way more persuasive and what's always more persuasive is how it affects and transforms your own life and having other people witness that and be like, what the fuck is that guy doing? Why is he, you know, so happy, energized, successful, have good relationships, whatever. Like that's what people pay attention to. People will resist persuasion and logic until they're blue in the face, but silently they'll be looking at you and being like, what's that, what's that dude doing? Cause everyone wants those things in their own life. They're just not always willing to explicitly admit to that and engage in the conversations that might derive, help them derive more clarity about it. Yeah. That's been um, really prevalent seeing all these people that used to be like slobs in so many regards. And now they're like gone from being like pale, fat, and not much in regards to like economic resources to being like jacked, tan, <laughs> carnivorous, <laughs> and, and you know have have a decent amount of savings that no one can fuck with. It's like that transforms a person in so many different ways. And it, watching your uh, podcast, John, with like just your average player, been hearing about every person's like hero journey. Has, has been like one of the best forms of content is just watching all the people <laughs> transform their lives for the better. It's my it's favorite, a, man. I can't, oh, it's, it's like, it's, it's all I really like to do because it's so great to uh, hear from Bitcoiners out in the wild and hear the story, you know, and even some that have just came in in like 2021, for example, and, and seeing how much, you know, their perspective has been reoriented uh, since that time and how that's bled into changes in their life and what they value and what they're pursuing. Like, and everyone's, you know, so far finger, you know, touch wood, everyone's been so awesome, you know, like, cause I don't, there's no filtering process here. Right. Someone says, yo, like, yeah, I want to, I'd like to jump on the pod one day and I'll be like, sure. The, you're the first one I saw. So we'll go for it. And there's no prep or anything like that. And we just fire it up and people end up being, you know, awesome. And, that's that's what Bitcoin does to people, you know. And I thought again, I, I, I thought I passed a rigorous vetting process. That's what I was told. <laughs> yeah. So 
it's the uh, dirtbag taste. Yeah, <laughs> but dirt. but but Jimbo, to one of the things you were saying is like not everyone's going to basically like fully internalize this and basically get to the point where they're ready to die for it and defend and that kind of stuff. I mean, people I think need to appreciate that what you, the responsibility you're willing to take as an individual is what's going to determine what the world looks like for you in the future. Like you're not going to get to a place where you can stop worrying about all of these things, whether it be you taking responsibility for your own finances or you taking responsibility for the safety of yourself and your family, or you taking responsibility for your health. It's like, it's not a temporary thing to get to a transition. Yes. There's going to be a lot more services that help you facilitate those things in the future. But the punchline is that like, this is a revolution and a mechanism and a tool that's bringing back both freedom and responsibility to each individual. And and that's a, a process of like permanent transformation, I guess, is the, is the right way to look at it. It's like, that's, that's what your life becomes then. It's not like, oh, let's, let's take this responsibility in the interim period and then we'll be able to like take our foot off the gas later. No, it's about constructing a life with those fundamental pillars as the most important things and then allowing a life to flourish around having established those pillars and and that this is partially why I think like in the future, there'll be a lot more space and a lot more interest in things like ritual and tradition and things like this amongst, you know, hyper Bitcoinized jurisdictions or communities or the world generally, because there'll be a recognition of the fundamental importance of certain responsibilities and certain aspects of life. And there'll be a, a desire and an incentive to uh, keep reminding people or inculcating in young people in their education, the importance of these things. And, um, you know, it'll be different from place to place and it'll evolve over time. But, you know, we, it's such a departure from the current culture, like I was saying, because all of this stuff is just abdicated all pretty much all forms of responsibility. And what that does to the individual is just, it almost dissolves them into like, well, into an NPC, right. Into someone who's just willing to swallow any gobbledygook that gets thrown their way. And, and it's so easily manipulatable to whatever issue for, for, whomever's ends. And, you know, the process that I think we're, many of us are, are engaging in is withdrawing from that and reconstituting things on a much stronger individual basis. And we're exploring all the different ways and all the different domains in which we must do that and which we have the opportunity to do, so, do that. And we're feeling we're, we're viscerally feeling the benefits of it. And I think that's why we continue to pursue it on that path because every, every time we do that, we real we, we like it, right? Like we like the feeling, like it's, it, it's a good feeling to, to take that responsibility and then be granted that freedom or liberation on the other side. And we're, we're trying to figure out how many domains we can do that in. Amen. Yeah. It has been, um, wicked to see that occurring on a bigger and bigger scale and seeing how that affects different cultures and different parts of the world as well the ability to say no like don't you think it's so crazy watching these people um in like lebanon and stuff having to go to the bank and yeah. with a gun to try to get their own money back like yeah i mean it's crazy dude, it's just it's all of these little snapshots of clown world you know you could take from well, Twitter basically every day. And you just like, 
first of all, totally expected and unsurprising to many of us, many of us, I'm sure. But just another example of of the cracks and the faults in this in the way things are currently structured, you know, and obviously it's not sustainable and but it's it's wild to see. Yeah. I I liked I liked earlier your John, your point about um people orienting towards uh truth, true things. Um, as I mentioned, I'm a software engineer, so I have a kind of a soft spot for things being correct and like true, you know, <laughs> you can't just, you don't just fudge it in programming. You ha it has to be correct or the computers, right. the computer will do exactly what you say, whether right, you said it right. right or not. Yeah. So, um, but what's interesting is, you know, we, we have this engine now, Bitcoin, which is a truth machine every, every 10 minutes on stochastically, there's a block and that encodes the truth that everybody agrees on. Um, and we have this world where the mechanisms of truth making are changing. We had the age of mass media, which is giving way to the age of you know social media, which is mediated by these algorithms that are you know um, directed in particular ways. So there's this like thirst for something that's true, and now we have something. It's like, well, here you go. Here's here's a global database, that, the state of which everyone agrees on. After after a couple of blocks, I mean. The next block might be a question mark, um, and occasionally you get collisions. But, but you know, after an hour or two, everybody agrees. And so, you know, what is the value of the thing that everyone can agree on in a world of you know lies and deception? Um, I, again, I, I every day that goes by is just a significant mystery to me that we're not already like you know post hyper Bitcoinization. But it's just going to take time. Yeah, I mean, I, I like again, I think it just speaks to the state of the world. You know, and I agree. I mean, what what does it mean to have a to be able to converge on uh, such a truth in a world that has you can make a case has descended into a type of relativism that's been extremely detrimental to you know many aspects of an indiv an, ind an individual's life who's who's within it. But one of the things that I'm extremely excited about is the beauty that will come from this transition. You know, and um, and you can look back to, and you know, people like Safe and others have popularized the idea of looking back into other sound money, sound money eras, and looking at the architecture and the art and seeing how it's been different. I, I, I definitely think there's validity to that argument or characterization, but also in other ways. I mean, I think to to your point about truth, um, truth is a thing you know through the ages that people have revered in different ways and, and for different reasons, and I think that we have such a profound, engageable, uh, verifiable form of it now. Like, I think, and this will sound weird to some, probably not to you two, but I think it will, in, it will inspire in many ways. It will invoke and call, bring forth like inspiration and creativity and beauty in people. People will want to glorify it in, in certain senses or at a minimum, be put in a position as a result of it that they can express their creativity, they can dedicate themselves to great works. But then, of course, it begs the question: like, well, if something has freed you up to pursue what is most meaningful to you, you know, building a you know a building that takes a hundred years or some you know a piece of art or some great work, well, will you not at some point come to glorifying or revering the thing that permits you to do that? And I think it's logical that at least some will. And so 
I think we're on the precipice, not only of just a great deal more freedom in, in all of our lives than we've ever experienced, but a great deal more beauty. And you could make the case that, well, may, many people have made the case, I suppose, that, you know, beauty is one of the things that makes life most worth living, you know, and surrounding yourself with beauty in all of its forms is maybe the name of the game more than anything. And maybe you might, in some sense, you know, uh, argue that freedom and beauty are somewhat synonymous. I certainly think freedom is beautiful, but let's say the manifestations of it, the physical manifestations of it, there might be distinctions there. But all, all just to say, I mean, I think that is going to be part and parcel with what's happening here. And I can't wait because it's, it's, it's inspiring. Like if you've ever, and this is kind of a trite example, but if you've ever been to like Vienna, for example, or Karnak in, uh, in Egypt, Karnak temple, or like these places that just, they're so inspiring because you know what went into them, you know, like the mathematics that went into them, you know, the creativity that went into them, you know, the work and dedication that went, went into them, the resources, like all that stuff. And now, and this is a representation of all of that. And it's, it's stunning. It's awe-inspiring. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And I think what Bitcoin represents is going to, is going to uh, precipitate or inspire more of that than has the, this world, or at least, you know, the, the civilizations that we're aware of has ever occurred before. And uh, I don't know if we'll be around, around to see that part of it. I hope we're around to see at least part of it, but yeah, I'm just, I'm super jazzed about the beauty, the onrush of beauty that I think is, uh, is upon us. Thoughts. Like you were saying, reflecting <laughs> this in 40 years time around a barbecue with a glass of whiskey, like in 40 years time, John, I would imagine <laughs> we would have seen a fair bit. Yeah. Well, like we say, I mean, we'll either not be here or hopefully, you know, be enjoying an extremely beautiful, peaceful, free environment. And uh, yeah, we're aware of what the arc is. Um, it's just about getting to it at the right time, being in the right place at the right time um, and avoiding the incoming tidal wave that will inevitably come. Yeah. Something. I mean, again, like, like Jimbo's point, who knows? I mean, again, it's just, it's too, it's too difficult to predict, but mm. we think, you know, we think it's a, it's a huge David versus Goliath sort of, sort of thing, but maybe it'll, it'll surprise, you know, maybe, you know, like the Soviet union, it'll kind of die out with a whimper rather than a bang. I mean, who knows? Well, yeah, I hope for that. Yeah. The, as, as individuals, we have a particular viewpoint, and I don't mean that we have separate viewpoints, which we do. I mean, like, there's like the individual frame. And so people will talk about money, like flowing in, like they'll say, okay, money flows into Bitcoin. It's like, that's an individual frame, because from your perspective as an individual, if you spend your money to buy Bitcoin, your money has flowed into Bitcoin. But from the perspective of Bitcoin and the monetary system, from the like general perspective, Neither more Bitcoin now exists, nor more money exists. Your allocation has changed, but somebody else took the money and gave you the Bitcoin, and their allocation has changed. But overall, the amount of Bitcoin is fixed. There's just only so much, I mean, yeah. unless you lose it, right? Unless, it, unless you burn it. And the, the amount of you know, fiat or whatever you exchange for it is also fixed. So the, 
the price, you know, while it's easy to think about like, oh yeah, there's more buyers than sellers. It's like, no, there's always the same number in any transaction, somebody bought and somebody sold. The price is the relative valuation. It's the thing, it's people want it more. It's aspirational. Like how much do I want this thing? And really mm -hmm. it's the marginal buyers and sellers. Like how much do they want this thing versus that other thing? So that's why I keep coming back to this idea. People talk about like, well, money can flow. Like what about you know, the, the, the bond market is $400 trillion. And it's like, what if all that money flows into Bitcoin? That money can't flow into anything because the money exists. Like the bonds exist. The, the amount people paid for the bonds exists. The Bitcoin exists. It can change hands. And what it can really do is it can change value. Like how much do people want this thing versus this other thing? So to the point about like how long it could take, I, I don't know how long it's going to take. I, it keeps boggling my mind that we're not there already. Uh, but that's because like, I came to this conclusion. I mean, I came, I was fully like a full believer in Bitcoin in early 2017 when it finally broke the old like uh, Mount Gox prices. Mm -hmm. I was like, holy crap, this thing's unkillable. Like I'm all in. Like, like that was, that was my epiphany moment was before the run-up in 2017. Like when it, when it hit $2,000 in 2017 in March, I was like, this thing's unkillable. Like, this is great. And then I fell in the rabbit hole. And then I started doing all this research and understanding like how it worked. But anyway, I, I think part of the reason why it's gradually then suddenly, and part of the reason why I think it could be very, very fast is because right now, most people know zero Bitcoiners. Most people don't know anybody. Like nobody's talked to them about it at all. And people who know any Bitcoiners mostly know one. Like it's just that one weirdo who always talks about it and that's it. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's that crypto guy who's trying to sell me like eight pictures, right? And that's it. That's, that's their only exposure. If you only know one person into something, that's a lone weirdo you can ignore. Like, okay, yeah, you play D&D, &D, that's fine. Like, you know, you do you. Like, right, but the D&D is that they all, they all get together. Once you know two people into something, it's like, maybe I should pay attention to that, especially if you perceive those two people as being independent, like they're not part of the same crew. It's like, you know, somebody else mentions it to you, right? Mm -hmm. Once you know three people, now you have FOMO, like literal, I, I fear missing out. Like, am I late to this? I better get on it real quick. So I, I, I know, you know, I'm <laughs> having failed so spectacularly at making timing predictions. I feel <laughs> emboldened now to just double down on my timing predictions. Um, what I think we're coming up to uh, is obviously there's the U.S. presidential election in 2024. We have U.S. midterm elections here uh, in a couple of months. <laughs> After the midterm elections, I think it's going to be a lot of attention on the presidential. I don't know yet what other clown world BS will swirl up in the interim to take everybody's attention. But until the presidential election is done with and in the past, I feel like, at least from an American perspective, a lot of psychological energy is going to be tied up in who wins that particular contest. Um, it's kind of like the last democratic institution that matters, right? Um, nobody, everyone's assessment of Congress is super low, like nobody approves of what Congress is doing, but at least you feel like you have a vote, or at least people used to feel that way. I don't know if, that, if people feel that way anymore, like a vote in the presidential more and more power seems to be accruing to these um, non-democratic institutions, these unelected positions like the Fed, like the, uh, the uh, what's it called, the Supreme Court. <clears throat> but anyway, so the presidential election, I think, is going to be all hands on deck, and it's the media is certainly going to pitch it as like the most important vote of our lifetime, which they always say. Until that time, until that's done, Bitcoin has to fight against all that psychic energy that is preventing people from spending time thinking about anything else. Bitcoin's also fighting the psychic energy of people 
hurting just to pay their bills because of the inflation and because of the interest rates going up and people's assets tanking. So Bitcoin is currently uh, fighting what I believe to be an insurmountable psychic barrier by just all the clown world stuff that's going on. But after the presidential election in 2024, that's when I think we'll have some psychological free up and people can start thinking about this stuff again. And that's when people will be hearing about Bitcoin again, like, oh, wait, that thing didn't die in 2017. Like, that's so weird. I thought that was dead. Like, no, no, it's, and now it's worth 50,000 or 100,000 or whatever it is. And that's when I think we will have another cycle. But uh, I'm bearish until 2024. A super just cycle, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it survived the climate lockdown 2023? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's, I mean, sure. I mean, survival. Uh, logical to in a sense you know as far as these things can be but i think it certainly seems like there's a lot of energy fud on the horizon you know now especially with the merge having done whatever the fuck it did um there's probably going to be a lot of attention placed on the comparison of the energy use and yeah i mean it seems very much that this is always the case in bear markets and it's the case until it changes and it changes very rapidly, but it seems like retail has very much checked out of crypto generally, but certainly Bitcoin. I don't know what like the stats at Swan and River and stuff. I mean, those guys haven't posted their buy side, sell side stuff in a while, but I even over the last like one to two months, I feel like even though like those bag holders that maybe were hanging on and still still hoping. I think they're starting to tap out and this is kind of always the case. And it makes me think that we, we puke once more down and then we hang out and grind there for a while. And that just clears out the rest of them. And then, and then we're set to, to keep going again, whether that's in 23 or 24 or who knows. Yeah. At, yeah. At the risk of, again, making even more time-based predictions, <laughs> um, you know, the end of the year is coming up the end of the you know t the year 2022 and of course that means that anybody whose assets have depreciated would want to harvest the tax loss the capital tax loss by selling this year so expect a lot of selling to be going on of everything i would guess uh coming up the next couple of months now we might see some front running of that but that that's my current prediction is like uh the bottom is going to be december like christmas for everybody is whether we're talking Bitcoin price, hash miner price, you know, prices of stocks or anything else, I think December is going to be uh, a big, a big rectitude for everybody. Yeah. I mean, it's hard not to think the macro landscape doesn't have a lot more playing out on the downside too, right? I mean, there's just, there's so much uh, crazy stuff going on. I, I don't think, you know, I don't think that's played itself out yet. And it seems inevitable that downsides there would affect Bitcoin, you know? So I think there's a, and this is how everyone feels now. I mean, I think most consensus is that Bitcoin kind of continues to go lower for a while. Um, but Bitcoin always surprises, you know, it does sometimes what you least expect it to. Exactly. So who the fuck, who the fuck really knows? Ex yeah, exactly. So back in 2018, I don't think anybody expected it to fall off a cliff at the end of summer from like six to three, like that, that took me by surprise. Uh, and then, I expected in 2021 it to keep going skyrocketing. So now I expect it to fall like 2018, but right, I, who knows? it's guaranteed not to. But if I expect anything else, then that won't happen either. So <laughs> do you think um, that Bitcoin being the escape hatch, as Lagarde put it, uh, 
that is the reason why clown world is accelerating to such an extent that it is is because like they have to try and lock in that social credit cbdc system as fast as they can um because the more time they take to implement it the more time uh bitcoin has to sort of succeed and for uh, its educational and you know ux experience and uh, what what have you for that to improve the more time they give it it's quite possible again like i said before i'm not sure how much of it would be uh explicit like how much they would be intentionally doing it for that reason versus just responding to the how rapidly circumstances are shifting and changing as a result of you know bitcoin you know bitcoin being the the not the bubble but the pin sort of notion that like because that escape hatch is there and because more people are going to take it and to your point jimbo like the the nominal amount of whatever dollars you're right stays the same as does bitcoin as people make those trades but the purchasing power changes right and the kind of the amount of the world that the, you know each respective system is is capable of addressing and is being transacted in is is different and you know i, I think our thesis is that eventually uh the purchasing power of the dollar basically goes to zero and as a result is not a very useful means of moving through or addressing the world and in bitcoin land it's the exact opposite and so you know i think there's some uh yeah i think there's definitely pressure on and some some of it's known by some of those people and some of it's unknown but i can see that being a catalyst for you know trying to push forward these uh more draconian or you know try to preserve their position uh more quickly as a result of these developments for sure yeah the the, the cbdc thing to address that part of the question i <laughs> I really don't think, personally, I really don't think that anybody cares about doing a CBDC, like even the powers that be. And my rationale is that they already have, like, fiat currency is already predominantly digital, right? A small, a relatively small fraction is physical cash, like three to maybe 11%. Like, that's kind of my, that's kind of like the 95% confidence interval. So it's already predominantly digital. It's predominantly digital in a centralized ledger at the central bank, whose name it is to be central. It's uh, administered by a hierarchy of commercial banks that interact with customers on behalf of the central bank. And it's not in anybody's interest to swap out that analog adjudicated hierarchical bureaucracy for a central database system. The only people that benefit from the central database system is, I guess, the few people that have direct control of it. But all of that other architecture just gets obviated. So yeah. to, to go back to Jamie Dimon, like Jamie Dimon doesn't want a, a CBDC, but Jamie Dimon's the kind of person who would hire the regulators who would push for it when they're done with their public service for a cushy job, you know, at, sitting there doing nothing at their cubicle all day. Mm -hmm. Right. And those people need those jobs. Like they're, they're not planning to wreck the whole banking industry. Cause then what, where are they going to go after they leave public office? Like, yeah. yeah, no, I agree with you. And it's just a question of will those centralized powers who, who, control does accrue to them via CBDCs, you know, like the ability to turn you off if you use a gas guzzling car or whatever the fuck it is, would they rather cannibalize, would they accept the cannibalization of the commercial industry to consolidate their power and control? And that's an open question. Um, and the other potential reason might be not even so much, because as you say, I mean, everything's digital and tracked and everything now already. Um, 
notwithstanding, maybe they have more granular control with CBDC, but you know, everything's pretty fucked already, but might it be a way to do like a bait and switch sleight of hand? So like, Hey guys, you know, yes, the currency has basically been destroyed. Wasn't our fault. COVID responses necessary for your best interests. But now we're doing the, you know, the tech forward thing. We're being, you know, like savvy and innovative and we're implementing the CBDCs and it'd be like a new Bretton Woods, but you know, for the 21st century and be as a, as a means of like, relieving themselves of the responsibility for having destroyed the the former system. Now that might be a bit of a stretch, but at the I same mean, time, they the get to knows? add a, a carrot. Like, Oh, we, I think we should do some sort of universal basic income. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can only redeem it in these tokens. Um, they're safe. You can look at the code, even though that could be changed later. You know what I mean? Where they can mm -hmm. impose real negative interest rates or expiry dates, what have you. But initially, they'll be like, here's this new blockchain that everyone's been talking about. We have applied it to our system for your safety um, so that we didn't do what we just did. Like, I can see that being a way to sort of wash your hands of what you just did and then just like reincarnate it and do the same thing over again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, yeah, I, I guess if they wanted to. Um, I don't know that. I mean, I guess if they were going to reboot it. And in some of the documents, so for example, um, there was a, a person named Amarova. I don't remember the rest of her name, but she was being um, suggested for some kind of position. Uh, I really don't, I, I wish I could remember, but I, I read some of her papers, um, uh, you know, as the sadist that I am. And um, one of them was, <laughs> one of them was talking about CBDCs and the possibility of, of uh, delivering um, aid in that way, and then also directing basically the economy by advocating or reducing the cost of certain transactions and making it harder to perform other transactions. You could they could control the money supply by giving people two accounts, a savings and a checking, effectively, where the savings account pays interest and the checking account doesn't, and you can only transact out of the checking, and then they can just crank up or down the interest rate on the savings account in order to um, inspire people to move money or not right out, out in the economy. So that's what these papers were all talking about was the, the benefits that accrue to a central control system if you have a CBDC with these properties. So like I said, I mean, people are doing the research. There are people being recommended for positions that might uh, implement these kinds of systems. Um, but at the same time, like in so doing, they obviate a monster bureaucracy of powerful banking interests um, to the chagrin of the regulators who would go take jobs with those places after the fact. So as much as that that's research. Why see, <laughs> that's why you see people like Kashkari. Uh, I don't know if I pronounced his name right. But I don't really care either. Um, <laughs> him saying that, you know, the CBDC is a commie tool and it has no place in America. Like you ever, oh, really? He said that? Yeah, he did. Wow. We've got it on video, which is fantastic. And, like and the reason I think he's. Must hey? be recently. Recently. Yeah, recently. And the best part about that is, John, like the reason why I think they're taking that stance on it is because like they're trying to fight that CBDC takeover. So they can't realistically be implementing the same thing they're sort of fighting and staving off at the same time. But yeah. once like say the ECB CBDC attempt fails 
And once that offshore dollar market completely crushes and, you know, Davos is defeated, what have you, um, then maybe they may change their tune about it. But right now, at least we've bought some, some time. Yeah. 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 C central banking is communist. Like it's in the communist manifesto, like command yeah, of the banking the fifth commandment. Yeah. Central bank digital currency is more communist. It's like, it's like doubling down because it provides even more central control over the behavior of the subjects of the state. So, yeah, yeah but I that's guess almost it, an argument in favor because these people fundamentally, you know, many of them would, you know, they, again, not explicitly, but in their actions align quite closely, it would seem with the tenets of communism. Yeah. I mean, communism makes sense if you can be in the elite privileged group of people in right. command of those, of those forces. But if you're looking from the outside in, it looks a whole lot less appealing. And so that's why I think even people like cash, cash carry, cash carry. I love how his name is like literally Neil, like kneeling cash carry. Like that's his, that's his actual name. Like <laughs> it's almost like the simulation winking at us. Like, you know, like I'll give you a, a cool... lot of, a lot of winks these days I'm finding. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. So, I mean, if he calls it out as a commie tool, he's not wrong. And maybe from his perspective, I mean, what, what are his motivations? Like, like, is yeah. he likely to be in charge of the, the CBDC or is he likely to get the boot with the rest of the bureaucracy with the mm. Jamie, Jamie diamonds and the rest? So I don't know. But I think like we were saying before, the options, it could very well be the case that the options being presented to whoever, you know, the decision makers in this regard are, are not great. It's like, do you want to, do you want to cannibalize this group of people or these interests and whatever, or do you want to be cannibalized by this? And so, you know, maybe it's not a great, it's like, you want to lose dollar hegemony, hegemony to something like Bitcoin in the next five years, or do you want to maybe preserve it for another 10? You got to give up the commercial banking system though. You know, they're both shitty options if you're the if you're the existing you know monetary power, but maybe those are the only options available to you. True. And then if that's the case, and you, you have a lose lose situation, either lose in five years or lose in ten years or somewhere around those ballparks, it's like when do they start aping in themselves? And also like what extent do we have rehypothecation to this day in terms of like exchanges selling more than they realistically do have? And have you guys had, sorry, three questions, but have you guys at CT talked about like um, proof of reserves and, and those kind of things? Uh, I'm sure we've talked about it. I mean, I want to be careful not to say something I'm not supposed to, but I, I'm, I'm sure we've talked about it. Um, I mean, we don't, you know, we don't sell Bitcoin or do anything like that, right? There's just Bitcoin on the balance sheet, which everybody knows about. Um, but I, I see this. This is this is one of the things that I have some concern about too. And again, like I've already accepted that education is basically rectification. Like pain is the best educator, and that's just the way it is. So I don't be I don't um, you know moan about it too much, but. So much Bitcoin is held by exchanges. So to your point and all the things that can happen there, so much Bitcoin is, is paper Bitcoin, you know, custodied by GBTC, ETFs, all this kind of stuff. And if we're at all correct in the thesis that there's going to be pushback on this at some point, all that shit is a phone call away from being taken from whoever thinks they own it. 
and that's that's just it and when we're talking about effectively millions of bitcoin that fall into that category again it doesn't stop bitcoin doesn't like the long-term thing is still intact but it would put a really bad taste in a lot of people's mouths and and again you know maybe that would backfire and it'd be a good thing because it would it would make so evident how egregious you know the 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 measures taken by who's ever on on the other end of that phone are but uh the you know it may very well be the case that the a lot of people get burned as a result of that, you know, so I don't, I'm not a cheerleader for, you know, ETF approval or any of this kind of stuff, because I, I don't think that's good. Like it, it sure it brings liquidity and it pumps the bags of people that hold Bitcoin, but most people that, that take advantage of those instruments, they're never going to make the switch. Again, this is the point we were talking about responsibility before, like they think, Oh, Hey, I've gotten exposure now to this exciting new asset. You know, I'm good. You know, because some people would argue like, oh, well, they're just, you know, they're a bit, they're not too tech savvy. They're going to get the ETF exposure. And over the course of time, you know, they become more comfortable with self-custody. Maybe true for some. I don't think for most. Most people's mentality works like, okay, I'm good. I got it. Somebody else is taking care of it. it. It's, I don't have to worry about it. And I, you know, I have some exposure to the upside. And if that's, if the, like, if a huge amount, because it already is a huge amount, but if even more gets sucked into that domain, well, then you have all the, the problems with paper Bitcoin, and then you have all the custodial risk. And then, you know, it could be a really bad circumstance if, if you know, a three-letter agency just wants to pick up the phone one day. And so I, I there's nothing I can do about it, but uh, other than promote self-custody and all the benefits that that um, entails. But I, I don't, I'm not a cheerleader for the, the ETFs and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it, the ETF approval would be in my own financial best interest, so I will I will hope that that occurs. <laughs> but that's because I was stupid. Um, so I had a 401k, like a lot of people, and the only way that I could convert that into Bitcoin custody, I say the only way, the only <laughs> the 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 least difficult way was for me to just ape into GBTC with my right. entire 401k uh, at significant premiums. And now we're at a significant discount. Like I'm down in fiat terms <laughs> and Bitcoin terms. It's like so much like, and at the time my rationale was like, well, if I take it out of my 401k, I have to pay a penalty plus taxes. Plus they're not even going to give it to me until I can demonstrate financial need, which is its own struggle. Uh, you know, to like document why I need them, why I need my fucking money, you know? So I was like, all right, fine. I'll just ape into GBTC and now I'm down a whole bunch. So uh, if this is, can be a lesson to anybody, like do not buy GBTC. <laughs> it has already <laughs> failed. It has already failed. It's down because it was at a premium of 20%. Now it's at a discount of 30. It's down 50% in Bitcoin terms. Like it, it has already failed. Like, yeah, so we don't need to wait. Like it's happened now. things that have already failed, Jimbo. Isn't it yeah. funny how like we're talking about either CBDCs or the collapse of fiat and people are thinking that gold is an option. Oh. Gold has already failed. Yeah. For so many reasons that I don't even think I need to paraphrase. Wait, but John before here, we break into that one, cause it's an interesting one. I, I don't want to talk about it. I'd love to like, do you guys think, what are your, what's your opinion on paper Bitcoin products and ETFs and stuff? Because like mine is, is, somewhat radical where I think all that is, is bad for Bitcoin, even though, you know, it might pump my bags. Um, 
what do you, but um, you know, I may not be thinking about it um, properly. So I'd love to get you guys opinion on the validity of those Good instruments. Um, I, I guess I don't understand the question about them being good or bad because I, I, I often, as a personality flaw, I get hung up on good, bad questions because like they exist, you know, is it better or worse that they exist? It's hard to say because history is path dependent. We live in, we live in the present where they did exist. So I, I would be guessing about an alternative branch of the sim where they didn't. So I don't know. My view on it, John, is that, you know, it isn't great in the sense that people aren't taking on the responsibility and accountability, as, as you kind of said. But hold on, my dog's being whiny. Shush. Um, but, but, but what you also said was that, like, sometimes the best lesson is, you know, is pain. Mm -hmm. And so if you believe that the best lesson is pain and that someone's going to eventually call and <laughs> highlight that pain then it's kind of contradictory to say that it's a bad thing because it'll teach more people and, you know, simultaneously pump bags for a small amount of people in the, in the interim. Um, I, I think that people getting burnt isn't going to be great, but it'll inevitably lead to highlight the importance of self-custody, which is the point of bearer assets in the mm -hmm. first place. Mm -hmm. um, so do I think, you know, people having learned that lesson is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, and, and part do of that is like, having can they listen on a great scale is a good thing. Sure. It is. Mm. Is people getting burnt a good thing? No. <laughs> like that part obviously sucks. Yeah. But I guess the other, hand. the other suck part of that is whoever the monopoly on force is having, you know, potentially being able to get their hands on all that Bitcoin as well, far more easily. And that's part of the, the calculus perhaps, but no, I, I take that point. And, and if pain is the exclusive way that the vast majority of people are going to learn, then as you say, maybe you should, you should, and, and Jimbo to answer your question, maybe bad or good is the wrong framing an outcome that you would prefer or not prefer to see. And therefore one that you would pr promote or not promote. So oh, for from example, where we are now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, from Kiwi's perspective, like maybe the, <laughs> maybe the thing to do is promote the shit out of all this stuff so people can get, you know, the pain over with as fast as possible. Now, because, uh, you know, I think a lot of people will not learn unless it's by a painful experience. I mean, that's just unfortunately the case for a lot of things, uh, learning the hard way. I guess in that case, if we're, if we're like judging what we think future outcomes would be, I think the approval of an ETF would hurt more people over a longer period of time than if the SEC continues to drag their feet forever and doesn't approve one. Right. Because the longer that there's no actual ETF, the more there's a spread between these like tr traded products and Bitcoin and people aren't mistakenly thinking that they're getting Bitcoin price exposure because it's like, why is it different? Why is GBTC $11 and Bitcoin's 18,000? Like, that doesn't make sense. Like, mm -hmm. I want that cognitive dissonance to persist as long as possible so that more people don't get wrecked like me and just take their money out of their 401k Ponzi scam and put it into actual, actual Bitcoin. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. So the gold question. <laughs> uh, yeah. The f funny, quick story about that. I was, this is years ago, gosh, like probably five years ago. I just offhandedly mentioned Nixon taking us off the gold standard in a work meeting. And um, one of my colleagues is like, wait, the dollar's not backed by gold. I was like, no, it hasn't been for 50 years. Like 
look into it. Uh, so people just don't even have any idea. I'm always surprised that people even like knew that it was, but somehow didn't know that now it's not for the last 50 years, you know, like yeah. in what capacity, in what circumstance would they have gotten that information? That's like, they would have gotten information that was so old and not have been updated, you know, for the, the last 50 years. Yeah. So, so, I mean, my take on the gold uh, thing is that gold, so rock lost to paper like hundreds of years ago, right? Gold could not keep up with the telecommunications advances of the 19th century. So when we had railroads and like telegraphs and people could conduct business from, you know, East coast to West coast, gold as a settlement vehicle was no longer viable. And so everybody put their gold in the bank and traded bank notes or checks. So gold was already dead during, in my opinion, this is my opinion, gold was already dead during the period of the gold standard. The fact that we have to talk about the standard, that it was a standard, that standards were employed, shows that gold was not money. Otherwise, we just would have called it regular regular gold. But no, there was a standard and people, uh, you know, currencies were exchangeable for gold. That, that to me was already the failure. You, you, it was already dead that long ago. So anybody who wants us to go back to a gold standard, I think, is missing the boat because you can't send gold through the internet. You know, there's just no way it, it's it's a physical thing so it, it has no it has no chance uh, of resurrection in my opinion well yeah, it's too Jimbo. expensive to send it's too expensive to store it's too expensive to have personally because you can't send it away at a zip at the time it, it failed for those reasons that's like it's in terms of like spatio-temporal um the temporal aspect of that it sucks <laughs> it's not portable it's hard to verify its authenticity and so for that reason, that's why paper was introduced to help with that portability and divisibility. So like that's already a failed system. And if you're talking about, you know, the upcoming debt jubilee or CBDC system, you have the continuation of fiat, an already failed, you know, metal or, or Bitcoin. Like those are the three options you get to choose or some, you know, monkey JPEGs, but that's about it. Yeah, I mean, clearly you guys haven't, you Luddites haven't heard about gold-backed cryptos because that is obviously the solution to the problems that you <sighs> referred to. <laughs> God, so no, please, like the word backed there is really, it's so, it's so crucial. People talk about, people, people talk about like using, using um, blockchain for something and they'll say, oh, it's going to be gold-backed or you know real estate backed it's like the fact that you're using the word backed means you've already failed the thing mm -hmm. about bitcoin is it is the thing itself like those digits people say oh bitcoin's not backed like yes exactly what you're getting is a number in a database and that number is all there is there's not there's no backer who can uh turn around and then not honor that there's not debt it's just a thing that you have exclusively in your head anyway um yeah the, the whole backed thing yeah please. peterson covered that well it's like the map is the territory. Yeah, he he caught on to a few Bitcoin concepts qu quite uh, quickly uh, when when we spoke to him. I don't know over a year ago. I was I didn't I didn't catch it at the time, but in, in listening back, I was pretty impressed in in some respects. And but you know he's he's an interesting case as well because he's obviously a powerhouse intellect in many regards, at least in my opinion. And um, but there's. Uh, I think he has like a, it's too good to be true sort of attitude to it. Like, I, I don't think he, he's also not, I mean, he, he claims not to be very well-versed in economics and stuff, but I think his thinking about 
value generally puts him in the upper echelon of being able being able to think about economics anyway. So I, I don't I don't really take that at uh or take that kind of like excuse for him. I think his major hang up is it's a little too good to be true, and therefore I'm not going to allow myself to believe that it is. Which fair enough. I mean, at a certain point, you you kind of have to determine for yourself or decide for yourself, like, you know, am I, am I going to act? And this is, this is really interesting. Cause like, am I going to act as though this is what I think it is? Am I going to act as though this is true? And you kind of have to make that choice. And interestingly enough, that's his refrain when he's asked the, do you believe in God question? And people always think it's some kind of a cop out like, Oh, you know, like, why don't you just say yes or no? What is I act as though, uh, he or it exists like what does that mean and i think it means something like this it's like you can't know for sure but how are you going to act and how are you going to orient your behavior i'm going to i'm going to do so in reference to acting as though what i think is is true or right or good or whatever is those things and because who knows if they are or not but i'm going to do that and then i'm going to observe what manifests in my life as a result and, you know, that's, that's kind of the process of, of living and, and engaging in belief and the feedback that, uh, it generates, but, uh, I don't know what, uh, what point I was trying to make there. So. I'm not sure if like the analogy is necessarily the best fit because like, it's not necessarily belief when it comes to Bitcoin in the sense that you run the numbers, like, and, and what he's kind of in a roundabout saying is he doesn't want to give himself hope. But it's like you can verify, you know, its authenticity and, yeah, and the rule. You, you can verify certain aspects of it, but you don't know for sure that it will always be there tomorrow, right? Like you don't, you don't know for a hundred percent its permanence. Is, is I guess is part of the the leap of faith aspect. Yeah. So the, I, I'd like to talk about that. And this this seems like it might be the right form. I've been trying to come up with a way to frame and explain the ways of knowing because people like, you know, we say don't trust verify, right? But it's a little bit more complex than that because there are things you can verify and things you can't. So the the way that I've been framing it and I welcome discussion, let me just explain the frame and then I'll, I'll stop talking, is the way I've been framing it is there are four ways to know something. The first way is lived experience. Like you did it yourself. Um, they'd be like rolling your own dice for a seed, right? Second way of knowing something is you replicate a result. So Maybe you don't trust the machine, but it's a black box or something, but you run it multiple times, or maybe you run on a different machine that's supposed to produce the same result, and it gives you the same answer. This would be like generating an XPUB from a seed, right? I don't know whether my hardware wallet is lying to me. Are those really my addresses? But if I put the same seed in a different manufacturer's wallet, uh, does it give me the same answer? Okay, now I have some, 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 some uh, um, what's the word, some expectation of it being true. So you can do it yourself you know, uh, experience it directly. You can replicate a result using unreliable means. Uh, the third way is to audit. So audit would be like, I read the source code and it looks good to me. So I, I understand what it's doing. Um, to me, that's, that's, a, you know, not as good, but you know, it, it's something. And then the fourth way is to delegate. You just expect somebody else to do it for you. And so <clears throat> science, what science should be, Science has lost a lot of its meaning, but um, what science should be is that replication part, right? You have a hypothesis, you do it yourself. Somebody else says, well, I don't know about that. So they replicate it using different tools. They, they replicate whatever your hypothesis is and they, they either can produce it or they can't. 
other people, you know, then, then you get these published results and people audit that and they say, okay, yeah, it looks like they did it right. And then everybody else delegates to the scientific community, like, okay, well, whatever you say is good enough for us, right? Those are like, this is examples of the real life of these four different ways. So um, to, to Jordan Peterson's, you know, situation, it's like, you know, yeah, you might not have the technical acumen to do the audit. And so you might delegate the audit to, to coders who can do that, but you can still replicate a result. You can still, you know, do something multiple times yourself and confirm that it produces the same outcome, or you can do it yourself if you do have that technical acumen. So these are, anyway, that's my, that's my framework. Uh, last, last time repeating, uh, experience, replication, audit, delegation are the four yeah. ways of knowing. No, I, I don't have, I don't take any issue with that. I, I think the, the mate, the broader point that I was trying to make is not that the system itself is not audit, auditable or verifiable, but just you knowing not only it's permanence and that'll be here tomorrow, but like you knowing that the logical framework that you've applied and which has caused you to value this thing is is accurate or is true or will hold up over the course of time. Like hypothetical, right? B Bitcoin gets, you know, fudded insanely. ETH gets the support of everything else. Market cap of ETH is double. The narrative, you know, around ETH is, is, is whatever. And so like, because value is such a funny thing. Like it, it, it is a decision, right? The Bitcoin is what it is because not only, yes, because it's a, a verifiable truth. And I think a lot of value accrues to it because you could make the case that it is the most intersubjective immutable truth that we have available to us. But that, that still doesn't mean that it's necessarily absolute. We're all acting as though that is the case, and therefore that partially makes it the case. Maybe our logical frameworks, our value frameworks, something changes in the, in the future. And I'm not making this case, by the way, because I think Bitcoin is actually fundamentally grounded in something metaphysical or metaphysical principles even. But my broader point is that it means certain certainty at a certain level is necessarily elusive. There's once if you expand out the domains of of potential action, at some point you're going to reach a domain where you lack certainty. So maybe within the protocol you can verify and you can audit, but as you move out, you get more uncertainty. So like on a galactic level, just to be super absurd here, if the Milky Way galaxy, you know, gets sucked in by a supermassive black hole that gets introduced through a wormhole or whatever in the next whatever period of time and everything in with it gets consumed well then bitcoin wasn't absolute wasn't wasn't permanent and therefore it kind of proves the point that your relationship to it at least in part was constituted by an acting as though it were true enough and permanent enough and certain enough to orient your behavior that that may have been a bit squishy but do you kind of know what i'm getting at yeah, I mean it's it's a consequence of it's a consequence of life that we never have all the information right. and yet we have to act. Right? There's always more information that would make your ability to decide better. Right. That you wish you knew and you can't know and you have to act anyway. I mean that's just it seems to be a fundamental paradox of existence. Well, that's and what so, axiom that's what axiom is, right? You you're saying I'm going to hold this as true in order to make logical deductions or, or to, to orient my behavior, et cetera. And so I, I think maybe that makes the point, right? We don't have 
We don't ever have full knowledge and therefore not full certainty, but we still have to act. So in relation to everything, we have to act as though things are true. And that constitutes all of our decision-making effectively once you boil it all down. And so I think that's and the case in relation to Bitcoin. I think that's the case in relation to God. And those are two big ones, but maybe you apply it to absolutely everything. And then juxtapose that to the alternatives, because you're going to have to act either way. One you think probabilistically is the truth in the, in the right direction. And the other, you know, for sure, is the wrong direction manipulated and disregard for consent. So either yeah. way, you're going to have to act. So I, I don't understand his hesitancy there. Um, do you think, though, that... Him, well, that's, a good, that's a very good point, yeah. Do you think that he and uh, Pierre Polivier, is that how I pronounce it, are going to oh, yeah. be like, yeah, uh, a Bitcoin sort of powerhouse duo between the two of them? Not really. No. I think um, Pierre has taken a lot of heat for his Bitcoin comments. Um, so I think he's probably going to dial it back a little bit. You know, if he becomes the leader, maybe he'll ratchet it up again. And I, at a minimum, I think he'll, he won't impose arbitrary government restrictions. But again, who the hell knows? I mean, I think uh, he's the best option that's currently available, but trusting politicians is, you know, not something that you want to get, engage in really. And I think, um, I don't know, it's interesting to me to see how it plays out with Peterson, because, you know, I think Bitcoin is the most intellectually stimulating, relevant, meaningful, consequential thing in the world today that bleeds in and has relevance in so many of the, these other domains of, of thought and discourse, whether it be philo philosophy or theology and energy and science and mathematics and economics and human action and all this kind of stuff. And that's what most of his conversations are fundamentally about. And the real elephant in the room or the lack of the elephant, you know, the thing that's missing in those conversations from my perspective, and I'll fully admit I'm a, you know, crazy Bitcoiner is, uh, is Bitcoin. And so I don't know if he, that eventually clicks for him and it becomes part of the thing, but also I think, you know, my assertion is that Bitcoin may be the very thing or at least something close to the thing that he's most in his dialogues, he's most trying to converge on like what Bitcoin is, is what he's often and his cohorts are often talking about. And that's partially why I think it's, it's a much bigger step for him to believe or recognize that Bitcoin is that thing, you know, cause I think, you know, maybe, I don't know, it would be such a big deal. Like what are the consequences of belief? And I think we as Bitcoiners are partially examples of that because we've already discussed how like once you go down the rabbit hole and you're, you're you know, your perspective starts shifting, well, that transforms you. That transforms your behavior, your character, who you fundamentally are. So like belief is a very powerful thing and you want to be careful how you engage it. And I think he recognizes that. And as a result, I think there's a lot of trepidation and it's not just trepidation because I don't think he sees it fully for what it is yet, but to the extent that he does, I think there's trepidation of being careful, you know, to believe in something so profound for what the consequences of doing so would be. Do you think that that hesitancy is fear of being ostracized? Because that isn't exactly prevalent in a lot of the work he does in other regards to like. What's uh, not prevalent? Uh, well, he did, like he has no fear of 
discussing controversial topics. Yeah, no, I don't think I don't think he was afraid of being ostracized. No. Given that, and given that he has to act, and one's you know funding the guards, you know the jailers, like what he he already talked about Trudeau and the you know vaccine mandates and the rest of it. Well, what do you think funds that, Jordan? (laughs) Good question. (laughs) I think. You know, maybe so you don't want uh, hope. You'd rather just perpetually fund something you despise. Like that makes no logical well, I, sense either. I I think there's at least two things going on, and likely m- much more. But one, he has, and you know, to give the devil its due, he has, I think, a rightful respect for certain elements of how, because like the world is super fucked, right? But it's not beyond redemption it's not like there's not good and great things about it it's not like modernity hasn't produced things that we might all agree are good we want to revamp them we want to add to them we want to subtract but like you know the and i'm the first to like ask the question what does progress really mean and if you look at the chronology of history you know i enjoy engaging in the discussions which are based on the premise it's not a straight line of progress you know there are i, I think we could look at pat, times past even several thousand years in the past. And we could say there are elements of that society when compared to the elements of, you know, global society today that are way more desirable, you know, and that's my personal opinion. And that's another discussion, but his, you know, but in his criticisms, he's always careful not to overly criticize the institutions of society um, because he recognizes, I think the, the danger of, taking an approach that it all needs to be burnt to the ground. And I think, so for that reason, he's reticent to be uh, too critical of some of the things that you, you, you maybe just mentioned. I also maybe think he doesn't see the straight line, you know, between the two all the time. Maybe the connection between fraudulent money and lockdowns and bureaucracies and all the other crazy shit he rails against. Maybe he doesn't see, perceive or believe in the type of straight line that that we might see and then like us all blind spots and cognitive dissonance right i mean we all have them and the reason why we have them is because we can't see them and even as much of a you know as much of an intellect that he has i don't think he you know i think he he's has he's victim he falls prey to that as well you know he's not um excluded from that pitfall i guess yeah, I think, I think it's totally reasonable to be skeptical. I think he's skeptical, which is reasonable. Like everybody's skeptical. First time you hear about Bitcoin, you're like, that eh, sounds like a scam. You know, like that's a totally reasonable um, response. It, you know, it just, it just takes time. I, I have been surprised at how many people I thought, like how many intellectuals I liked and thought were smart. And then Satoshi's razor comes along and then they just don't get it. And then it's like, okay, well. Like <laughs> that's the first time I've heard Satoshi's razor. It just it just well, I guess guess I was wrong. Guess I was wrong. I mean examples like Taleb, right? Taleb even yeah. wrote the, the the preface to uh Safe's book and then uh and then he just <laughs> he just fell off a cliff. Um but um another example would be um I don't know if you know this person, Clay Shirky. Is that a name? So Clay Shirky wrote uh, a couple of books um that were uh, popular a while back. Well, I mean, popular in the circles that, that, uh, that I was, um, in, uh, I think one, I forget what they were called now, but his, 
he's he was a really um big advocate of technology and particularly things like wikipedia and he was talking about how wikipedia really changed you know how was it that wikipedia was able to be successful at um providing all this information because you have to remember uh, for however bad wikipedia is now it's still <laughs> way way better than all of the um encyclopedias the private encyclopedias that existed before wikipedia and how did that come to be because it was just people making regular contributions and the answer is that wikipedia um makes it easy to undo vandalism. So you can go into a Wikipedia article, you can write whatever you want, but anybody else can come along and just say, nope, revert. Like they can just undo whatever whatever horrible thing you put on this, this website. So by, make, by making an easy to apply undo button, Wikipedia became a, the, a better encyclopedia than all that had preceded it uh, on an open platform. So Clay Shirky made this observation. I think he was totally right. Clearly, he understands the, the nature of decentralized systems. He, he speaks well about Linux and about how Linux uh, defeated Microsoft, at least in some, some areas, some arenas, some, some by taking contributions that Microsoft could never have access to because Microsoft only takes contributions from people that pays. And Linux is like, anybody can come along and just make one change and here you go. Now it's part of the system. So he, he, had, this, he had this good framework for understanding the value of Wikipedia and Linux and these systems that um, are valuable because they have contributions from all kinds of people. And yet he doesn't get Bitcoin, right? Satoshi's razor whoosh, guy doesn't get it. And so I'm like, okay, well, I guess he wasn't as smart as I thought. So here with Jordan Peterson, um, as long as Jordan Peterson isn't railing against Bitcoin, I guess uh, I'll continue to give him some time, right? And it's totally reasonable again, to be skeptical. And especially if he's not already versed in things like money, if he spent his entire career thinking about non-monetary uh, ethics issues, then I can understand why that might be a hole, a hole that he doesn't um, have a lot of experience in. That's fine. But anyway, I, I hope he comes around. Um, one person I was super excited to see come around was, um, uh, what's his name? Jeff, uh, uh, author of um, The Price of Tomorrow. Jeff, um, Jeff Booth. Jeff Booth. Jeff Booth. Yeah. So he, he came up with prices tomorrow. I heard about the book. I saw him speak like Ted talks and whatnot. I'm like, now here's a guy who should really understand Bitcoin and who should appreciate the fact that having a money that's not controlled by a small cabal of elites to, you know, cantillionaire themselves into oblivion. Like this is a guy that should get it. And then he got it. And I was like, <laughs> yes, like, thank you. Thank you. One person, you know, but, yeah. um, but yes, so well, far Jeff, the record has not been great. Jeff is awesome. And you know, one of the things that I think gets in the, especially the well-known academics or intellectuals way is ego. You know, so often if you, if you hang your hat on being an intellectual and something comes up that is, you know, extremely relevant and, you know, people are talking about it and you don't really get it, the easiest thing to do is dismiss it as not being as relevant as you're being told and say like, this is, you know, because you don't even want to tell yourself like you would have known about something and you would know about something that's so consequential and that you don't is and to protect your ego, you dismiss it. And Jeff is a prime example because he's a super humble dude. He's a super humble, super nice guy. And I think Peter Peterson, despite his insane fame and growing fortune, and you can imagine how much that would play on an ego and how much it might pump you up and manipulate you. I think he does a pretty good job at remaining humble and trying to not uh, fall, you know, prey to that sort of mentality as a result of the fame and an intellectual notoriety and all that kind of stuff. But I think one of the interesting or important questions for us is what is the litmus test 
that we are looking for from such people. Like we, you, we referred to purity tests right at the beginning of this thing, but like what characterizes a card carrying Bitcoiner? Like, so Peterson, we know Peterson owns Bitcoin. He said that before, probably through, you know, I don't know if it's custody or not, who knows, but he owns it. He, you know, he is, he agrees that it's a good thing. He's glad it exists. He thinks it's promising. He's just not willing to say, you know, I've accepted Bitcoin as my Lord and savior yet. And so what are we looking for in these, you know, famous people out in the world that we're hoping grok it? Like, what are we looking for from them? Are we looking to invite their intellect in and we want them to really get it so they can contribute to the discourse? Or are we looking for them to say, you know what, separating money and state is the most important thing. We've been, you know, on the plantation, slaves on the plantation for too long. This is an injustice and Bitcoin fixes this. Like, what is it that we're looking for people, you know, from, to, to become to become a Bitcoiner? From intellectuals, what you're wanting is just objective journalism and being humble, like being able to say I was wrong. In terms of being like an actual Bitcoiner, in my sort of definition, is you have to self-custody and run a node. Otherwise, you're trusting and not verifying. And that's what led us to the issues that we're trying to escape from. So in order to actually use the system and be a Bitcoiner rather than be a Bitcoin user, you need to actually run the numbers and and verify things. Like otherwise you're you're trusting and that leads down a slippery path. That's how I sort of perceive it. But it's kind of interesting watching the Bitcoin derangement syndrome from the intellectuals that come in and try fix it <laughs> from an early, you know, shallow look into it but like if you have the ability like jeff booth be like oh i was wrong or be humble and be like objective about what you're seeing rather than trying to make it about you like that's all you're looking for from an intellectual rather like i don't want to hear about string theory or or what have you i want i just want you to make it like easy layman terms this is your understanding this is why and be flexible on those for pushback if someone goes no you're wrong and here's why and be like okay that right. makes more sense and then update your thesis like that's all you're looking for from intellectuals like listening to people like naval and talib and stuff was <laughs> frustrating to say the least i think it was gauge theory i think that was the reference <laughs> to uh weinstein that you may may have just made but you know yeah. I, I i agree i mean like what are you most fundamentally subordinating yourself the truth or your conception of yourself and how people think of you in a certain realm and i think the ones that uh, fall into the former category, humility is an outcome of that. And as a result, you're more, you put yourself in a better position to acquire more knowledge fundamentally and probably get along with those others that are doing the same better. And um, it's evident, right? I mean, we see this all the time. This is why, you know, Bitcoin from, from the perspective of, of those people uh, that come in with an ego, they characterize Bitcoiners as being toxic and mean and all this kind of stuff. And for the people that are humble and wanting to learn and not, you know, trying to assert their uh, reputation or anything, you know, their accolades or appeals to authority or credibility or whatever, um, then they they enjoy it. They're like, wow, what a, what a stimulating environment for having like, you know, rigorous conversations and debates and questions about all of these, you know, hyper, super relevant issues. And like, wow, how, how awesome. And I love that people are passionate about it. And I love that people feel like they, you know, there's no 
PC. There's no taboo. Like you can, you know, you can get on how you like and you sink or swim based on how you do that. Like, wow, how refreshing. That's such a departure from, you know, the, the normal society as it, as it is today. Yeah. It's literally just applying the scientific method. Like here's my hypothesis. Here's why I believe it's correct. And then, Oh, reality slaps you in the face. No, that was incorrect. Here's why. And then just like updating your model. Like that's all you can expect from any intellectual or scientist, but that seems to be, you know, quite missing in today's clown world. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what I want, what I want is like, I, and I'm, first of all, I just want to say, I'm totally cool with ignorance. Like everyone starts out ignorant on every topic, like ever, right? Ignorance is the default state that you should be in most of the time. Uh, and then you learn something and then now you're not, not as ignorant anymore. So I'm totally cool with ignorance and I would love to see them admit ignorance when they don't know. And I think Peterson's doing that just fine. Like, he's like, I don't know. Like, I, you know, I, it seems cool. I don't know. Like, that's fine. Like, love it. Wonderful. If you're going to be confident though, if you're going to be confident, then you have to know. <laughs> and that's, that's all I want is like, so I, I want intellectuals to understand. I want them to have done the thinking to, to arrive at the fact that like, Money is the problem. Like the fiat currency is the problem. It is upstream of all other political discussion until and as, as long as the state can issue as much currency as it wants, any other political discussion is irrelevant. It just doesn't matter because the state can always just spend to do whatever it wants to do. It backstabs Republicans who think they're uh, fiscal conservatives every time they're in office, every single time since Reagan or before. Um, and of course, uh, blue team has no no illusions about not wanting to spend money. That's all they want to do is spend money all the time. So mm -hmm. until and unless you separate money and state, all other political discussion is a waste of time. I want intellectuals to acknowledge that. If you're going to be confident, I want you to acknowledge that. And then that's A. And then part B is, okay, so then how do you separate money and state? What technologies are possibly able to affect that transition? Because we're not going to be able to do it by voting, as evidenced by <laughs> every election ever. So uh, – what technologies are available? And if you admit the technology is available, then it's like, okay, now, now if you're so convinced that it's not Bitcoin, explain to me why. Like, if you think, you know, people, I hear people all the time, like, oh yeah, the government will shut it down. It's like, how? Like, explain to me how. The government is not all powerful. They don't have infinite resources. They have to make decisions about what they want to do at the expense of other things that is the opportunity cost that they're not going to do. So anyway, that's what I want from intellectuals is like, either to your point, be humble, like be humbly ignorant. Humble ignorance is great. Like I, I will take humble ignorance all day long. I'm humbly ignorant about all kinds of stuff. I was wrong about the super cycle so far, <laughs> so far, so far. We'll see. We'll see. Um, you know, humble ignorance is fine. Uh, confident ignorance is what really grinds my gears. It's like, if you're going to yeah. be confident, at least know what you're talking about. Yeah. Agreed. Confident ignorance is the worst. <laughs> Gents, uh, have we not touched on something we want to do? We want to touch on before we shut it down or are we good? been going for almost three hours i think we're good what do you reckon jimbo uh i'll apologize for being late i'm sorry i didn't i i, I must oh, have missed we, the invite or something yeah i thought you were gonna be uh no i didn't send an invite i said i'd send oh, okay. a link on the, on the twitter chat beforehand but uh when we first started i thought you were gonna be much later i was great because kiwi said you might be like 40 minutes late but uh you hopped in pretty much right at the beginning so oh yeah i had a i had a work meeting out. but uh but uh, it's one of those like whole bunch of people called in. So I just kind of like quietly dropped off and it was all right. Nobody and you knows. know, priorities. Nice. Yeah, yeah, priorities. Priorities. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, guys, I appreciate you, uh, you know, putting up your hand to do this. And, you know, I knew it would be fun just hanging out and shooting the shit. And it was so appreciate the time. And uh, 
you know, whether I see you at a conference or we do this again sometime in the future, like, you know, let's keep, let's keep in touch and hope everything is good for you guys. Sounds good, John. Thanks for having us. Appreciate your work, man. Yes. Thanks for having me. All right. See you guys. Take care. Catch ya. Let's go.